Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether you told the lab you broke their centrifuge. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Earlier this year, I spoke with Andy Weber about a way that we could potentially use new technologies to put an end to bioweapons, pandemics, and maybe contagious diseases as a whole. We spoke about that at a high level, uh, which makes sense since Andy is a national security person and not at all a biomedical scientist. Uh, but I was left hungry to actually dig into the technical details, like how do these new technologies work? Uh, where would we roll them out? Uh, would people be willing to adopt them? Uh, what is the most likely way for this plan to fall through? And who might actually pay for all of this? Andy said that if that's the stuff that I wanted to talk about, I should speak with Pardis Savetti, uh, the rock star scientist at Harvard who several years ago co-authored a concrete implementation of Andy's vision and has been working to get it funded, while at the same time doing cutting-edge research on ways to use CRISPR technology to improve the world. I always love interviewing natural scientists because you can actually get into the weeds with someone who works deep inside those weeds. Uh, And these proposals really might change the world and be arriving in a hospital near you in years to come. Or at least that's my hope. Pardis also turned out to be quite a wise person uh, who has been through a lot in life and learned some valuable lessons from it all. If you enjoy this or any other episode of the 80,000 Hours podcast, the easiest way to help us out is to leave a review of the show uh, on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever else you listen to and discover podcasts. It's really helpful because the number and quality of reviews uh, seriously affects how inclined people are to give the show a go uh, when they first find out that it exists. All right, without further ado, here's Pardis Sabeti. Today, I'm speaking with Pardis Sabeti. Pardis is a professor at the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease and at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Center for Systems Biology, where she runs the Sabeti Lab. Among many other roles, she is an institute member of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, and a Howard Hughes investigator. She's previously studied at MIT as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University and at Harvard Medical School. Importantly, for today's conversation, Pardis is also one of the co-founders and a shareholder of Sherlock Biosciences, a company dedicated to improving health worldwide through accurate, fast, and affordable testing. And finally, she's the lead singer of the rock band Thousand Days. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Pardis. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I hope we're going to get to talk about concretely how to build a diagnostic system that can detect and diagnose pandemics as soon as they appear and before they run out of control. But first off, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Um, Well, I'm working on all sorts of different things that are related to pandemic preemption and response. And uh, it's funny because for the longest time I've had to try to explain why it's important. I don't think I need to do that anymore. Uh, It's mostly (laughs) trying to explain why what I'm doing is, you know, I think it's sort of trying to get more concrete terms now, just because so many everyone is everyone is doing what I'm doing now. So it's sort of just trying to explain the specifics of the different activities we do. So I guess what are the what are the mainstreams of research in the in, in the Sabeti lab? Is it, is it mostly kind of the, the diagnostic stuff that I've been learning about to prepare for the interview? No, actually, that I mean that's a very more like nascent and smaller part of the work we do. In essence, I started my career really in a field called computational biology. It's studying the genomes of humans and other organisms on earth to try to understand patterns that might be important in understanding our history and impacting human health and the health of our planet. So it's really just about kind of using genomics as sort of biology as mathematical information. And I just try to study that, all those patterns in nature and try to find things. And so for a long time, we were studying the human genome. It pointed us to the important impact of infectious diseases We then started to study the infectious diseases themselves and started to understand that they were much more widespread than people had thought. And it it kind of led us to the field where we started 
studying a particular virus called Lassa virus that most people have never heard of. And certainly, you know, only even started being talked about much in the last few years, but that uh, is like Ebola, a deadly hemorrhagic fever virus. And we started working on that virus in the field. And the more we look, the more we realized these deadly viruses were everywhere kind of creeping around. And that brought us to start thinking about diagnostics really as a tool. It's basically like we can't study, understand, and combat these things if we can't see them. And diagnostics let us see them. And so I think it's a critical piece. And I always follow wherever the needs are, but it's not, it's actually not my, the kind of my core area of expertise. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll talk about the work that you've done on, on Ebola and, and Lassa in, in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a little bit of a preface for, for listeners to help to understand uh, yeah, why, why we're doing this interview today. Part of the background is a couple of months ago, we released this episode with Andy Weber, who, who I think you know and have spoken to fairly regularly. And part of that was about how to put an end to pandemics and bioweapons, in his view, using the kind of diet diagnostics that you're working on in combination with mRNA vaccines. And that episode was super popular and I know got distributed within various governments. And uh, there's, there's people who are taking this idea pretty seriously and it's, it's getting around. I found that kind of everyone seemed to think that the idea was basically worth pursuing, though I did get some responses of people who were skeptical that it would be quite as effective as, as Andy made out. His pitch was that it would totally put an end to, to bioweapons or, or make them useless, which is, a, which is a pretty tall order. But anyway, yeah, after, after, after that, I, uh, I asked Andy which scientists I should talk to about technologies that could actually make his proposal possible and, and actually get it, get it rolled out within our lifetimes. And he said, you're the person uh, because you're kind of at the cutting edge of this contagious disease diagnostics and you were focused on this before COVID came along. But yeah, before we get to all of those diagnostic tools, yeah, it would be really useful to have some background on the pandemics that you've worked on in the past and what you contributed there. So yeah, what has been your direct experience with trying to control emerging contagious diseases? I guess it's Ebola and Lassa that are the, the big ones you've worked on. Yeah, well, at first, I, I wanted to say, you know, thank you for that. That's like very high praise from Andy. And I'm <laughs> grateful to be here to talk about that kind of work. You know, I think that what he's proposing is bold and ambitious, but I, I think it's it's something that's in reach. You know, if, if we can send a man to the moon and we can do all these things, we can combat infectious diseases on our planet and do so in a way that makes the world healthier, not just from staving off a, a potential cataclysm, but on an annual basis, reducing mortality and morbidity. So I, I, I certainly think it's worth pursuing and, and it's ambitious, but it's, it's possible. And, and I think that a lot of it is around the work that I've done in other outbreaks that makes it clear. Like it is amazing actually how much we've been flying blind for years. I mean, think, think of it yourself. Like when was the last time you were sick and it wasn't the flu or strep and you knew what you had, or it wasn't flu, strep or COVID and you knew what you had, right? Every time we get sick, we're just like, well, you know, I hope it's, I hope yeah, it's not anything it's too something. bad. And you kind of look around people in the office and you think who yeah. gave it to me and hopefully we, but we don't even ask. There's, a, there's this mm. like cultural thing where we don't even ask, like, what did you have? What do you think it was? What worked for you? We're afraid to even know like these things. And so it's just amazing how little we do to educate ourselves and be responsive to outbreaks spread on in our communities. And before this, right, masks are now a thing, but like people used to come to the office and cough on you, right? Or in schools, in class, like we just sort of accept some level of this infectious disease burden. And there are tools and technologies that make it possible. So I think I think I said at the beginning that before I used to have to explain what I do and why it mattered. And now it's like, oh, it's what everyone does and thinks about. When you are in it, when you're in a pandemic, all these things become very obvious to you, why you need to have better diagnostics and better responses and, and build all of those things in those systems, but also that they're plausible. And if we actually invested even a fraction of what we invest in so many different programs, we would have a, a massive lead on how to stop infectious diseases broadly and pandemics. 
Yeah, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon, as you say, because we don't really have diagnostics for anything that's not really serious. We just have this broad category called colds and people are just like, I have a cold and it could be one of hundreds, thousands of different viruses, but we're content not knowing. <laughs> well, yeah, and also it could be a bacteria, which is very mm. different biologically and has to be treated in a very different way. Even in what we nutritionally give ourselves, it's a different process. There's a beautiful paper by Ruslan Metzitov that explains, you know, that kind of old adage of start with cold feet of fever, like... There's a reason for that. Bacteria and viruses have different nutritional demands. And you should even, even in the way you react in those small ways, it makes a difference. There's so much we could be doing better if we actually knew what was making us sick and what works for people when they have that specific microbe as opposed to something else. Yes, it reminds me of a, I think uh, Isaac Asimov had a bunch of stories about these superhumans or, yeah, they're still recognizably human, but they, they, they'd advanced massively thousands of years in the future and they were on other planets. And in the, I think in the, in the, in the space of novels, they just didn't have any diseases, any contagious diseases whatsoever. They'd, they'd managed to eliminate, I think, all bad bacteria and, and all viruses that they didn't want. And it, that's part of him painting a picture of a kind of quite sterile world, world for them, quite a boring and very risk averse world. But I guess actually maybe we could get to the point where we could eliminate most of these viruses and bacteria more in the next, uh, next, next few hundred years with kind of the technologies that we're coming up with. Well, I mean, the interesting thing, right, about is that we don't, we absolutely don't want to eliminate bacteria and viruses. I think we did, we probably would eliminate ourselves. So there are 30 trillion, an estimated 30 trillion human cells in the, you know, the cells in the human body. And there are 40 trillion bacterial cells in the human body. We are more bacteria than we are humans and they are critical to every part of our survival. It's not about getting rid of them. And even viruses, there's so many viruses that are helpful to us that have integrated into our genome that are important in processes for us. So it's not about getting rid of them. It's about creating a, that healthy equilibrium and staving off the pathogenic effects that even our own cells can have, right? Our own cells can, can act out. And I think that there's an ecosystem and it has to just be kept in balance. All right. Yeah. Let, let's come back to the work that you've done combating the hemorrhagic fevers like, like Ebola over the years. Kind of, yeah. How did, how did you end up involved in that? And uh, what, what did you try to contribute? Yeah. So I've been interested in infectious disease for a very long time. Even when I went to medical school, that was sort of the area I was most excited and interested in. And in my, actually, my PhD I did before was um, studying malaria. So it's always been an interest of mine to study this kind of interface between humans and infectious diseases. And then I was doing my postdoc with Eric Lander at what is, became the Broad Institute. And I had developed an algorithm that could mine the human genome looking for footprints of ancient adaptation, basically looking for beneficial traits that arose in our genomes and rose to prevalence. And there are a number of classic ones that we know about, like the sickle cell trait that rose to prevalence because it protected from malaria. But using sort of a way of detecting that kind of pattern was able to find a lot of other things. And one of the strongest signals we found in the human genome linked to a gene that's critical for the entry of a virus called Lassa virus. I'd gone to medical school, I'd never heard of this virus. I went back to my textbooks and it's like noted once in a table about arena viruses, but not described at all. It's just not something that's on our radar. And it sort of was stunning to me that there was this virus that, you know, the data was telling me might've been the most impactful virus in our human history, but yet it's not something we think about or know about. So the signal selection we detected is in a population from Nigeria. The virus was first described in Nigeria. So I was like, well, that's interesting. And then, you know, looking more and more about it, the more I started studying the literature and connecting with my colleagues in Nigeria, the more it became clear that actually this virus probably is circulating. And in fact, no one is testing for it. I mean, no one. In none of these countries, like only in Sierra Leone, had there started to be some testing on site. You know, there were cases in England no one had tested for. No one is testing for these things. In the United States, uh, generally, there's only one lab that tests for it, very, very rarely. And it's 
the CDC. It's not something you're looking for. So of course you expect not to find it. And so we worked with Christian Happy in Nigeria and partnered with the Aruba Specialist Teaching Hospital and set up the ability to do diagnostics on site. And in Germany, we're also coming at the same time. And we kind of all worked together to collectively build up diagnostic capacity in this hospital. And what we found immediately was that there were a lot of cases. And in fact, the more cases we had and the more we were able to treat those cases and give them a life-saving drug, Ribavirin, the more people started coming to the hospital because there was a reason to do so. They could get information and they could get a good outcome. And our catchment area grew and grew. And we started to see not just cases of Lhasa, but all sorts of other things. And our team basically wrote a paper published in Science Magazine as a perspective that was posed as a question, emerging disease or diagnosis. These diseases that we call emerging, are they actually new or are we just picking them up for the first time? Is this the first time we've detected them, but they've actually been circulating widely for centuries? And so we had basically on that premise started saying we need to actually have better diagnostics on ground in our sites in Sierra Leone and Nigeria and got support from the World Bank and the NIH to build that up. And then Ebola hit. And we'd already been paying attention to Ebola at that time. In fact, the paper really talks about evidence for both Lhasa and Ebola to have been circulating for some time. And so we were prepared. And But essentially, we were part of that outbreak because we'd been paying attention to that area, thinking there were risks already. And the outbreak hit, it just kind of came to us. And so our colleagues on the ground were poised and ready. They, they detected the first cases in those countries. And we sequenced the genomes and generated the data and made it available to others so that they could start building diagnostics and vaccines and therapies, trying to get the world to be able to move quickly to these outbreak responses. Yeah, amazing. What's going on with Lhasa? So you're saying it seems like it's had a, had a large push on human evolution over the years, or we see some signals in the, in the genome of that. It's like, it's quite, quite dangerous, right? But it's circulating in these countries, but we're not picking it up or people aren't noticing that it's Lhasa. This is a slightly, slightly strange picture that will be so obscure if it's having such a large impact. Well, yeah, so there's two parts of that, right? So, so yeah, one part is, I mean, it is amazing actually how much death we ignore in some of these other countries. And we kind of group them all in as fever and often you know misclassified as malaria and we just leave that. So there is some of that. There's some actual like fatalities that we are ignoring. But there's also, that was part of the intriguing thing. Why is it that for some people it's devastating and for other people, they don't get sick at all? We all know about asymptomatic infections now, but at the time it was really hard to say, like that, that was one of the things that we described in this paper is, hey, there's a lot of asymptomatic infections. There's a lot of people you're not seeing getting this at all either. And if there was ancient adaptation, that's exactly the kind of thing you'd see where some people, genetic traits that completely protect people would have emerged to prevalence. And so some portion of the population don't see it at all or basically can either not be infected or not get sick from it, while other people will have devastating consequences. And what was interesting is it looks as if just a, only a fraction of people in places like Nigeria who get Lhasa get ill from it. And it's hard to know because it's all about what did you catch. But from what we can see, all of the non-African individuals who got Lhasa had pretty devastating consequences, lots of fatality, also lots of long-term effects. And so what we suspect is that in places like West Africa, where they've historically had a lot of exposure to Lhasa, people have developed genetic resistance. And in other places, they don't have that. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
Let's push on and talk about the Sentinel plan, which I guess has been developed in in part in, in response to this work, finding that there's all of these diseases potentially circulating in places where there aren't good diagnostic methods. I suppose the Sentinel plan, it, it seems like it could serve both purposes of understanding much better the diseases that have always been out there and then potentially treating them and containing them. And simultaneously, it would also provide the infrastructure necessary to catch and contain future truly new new diseases before they, they can spread very far. And I guess, yeah, I've read a proposal document you contributed to titled Sentinel, a pandemic preemption system for real-time detection of viral threats, which kind of amusingly uh, you published in December 2019, right before COVID-19 struck the world. Uh, yeah. yeah, very timely. What's the big picture strategy of the Sentinel Sentinel plan or program or system? I'm not sure quite what I, I should call it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, it, it, so, it, you know, it, it, it had its foundations in the work we were doing on loss of fever, where when we started to see it, it's like, if we just set up diagnostics for even one thing, you know, if you could treat just one thing, then that's at least one thing you know you do or don't have, right? And it'll start bringing people into the system. It'll start supporting the hospital and its sort of caretaking. And you can build on that. It's like a, it's a positive feedback loop where each thing that you detect brings more people in and interested in coming to the hospital, brings more cases you can investigate, potentially brings more diagnoses that you can then now feed into the system and develop tests for new things that could be circulating. And so it's really about building an ecosystem What's amazing about pandemics, right, is that pandemics are described, they're, they're in that class of existential threats to humanity, right? They're the kinds of things that we think about, like nuclear war and climate change that are existential threats to humanity. But there's a few things that are pretty special about them. One of them is that they have been very effective, like in a very large way, year after year, century after century, in, in all of history, they have been cataclysmic and they've had incredible effects on both life as well as on you know, economics of human populations. And so they are things we should respond to and be prepared to. But also that there, there's a universality to infectious diseases. The same technologies you're doing to stop Ebola or a, or a potential bioterrorist threat, the same kind of technologies you need to do to stop that is what you need to do to stop that common cold going through your kid's daycare, you know, or through the office. And so, so there's a real power of just building those technologies that can be used across the pace. And the other thing I would say about infectious diseases is that in other things that we kind of talk about, like these universal human things we should do, like vote or cycle, it's hard to explain to a person why their vote matters, particularly in the United States with the Electoral College, or while their recycling matters when they're one person and you see businesses dumping all sorts of things into the environment and you say, well, what do I do that matters? But with an infectious disease, because of the exp- exponential spread of viruses, it is true that one person could have an outsized potential to have an impact, right? One person can launch a pandemic and therefore one person could stop a pandemic uh, with their actions. And so I think that that's sort of like how we pitch what we're doing with Sentinel is to empower every actor in the system and to build these systems that will work in times of quiet that are prepared to be leveraged in times of need. So what are kind of the, what's the machinery of the, of the system? Machinery the system is, you know, so tools and technologies we call the kind of three tenets of detect, connect, empower. And there's also, of course, the piece of overcoming, which is building those countermeasures. But what we, we were sort of focusing sentinel around is just what we as a community can do. And it's, in essence, it's building technologies to detect viruses in lots of different settings. So that is from, you know, having these sort of sequencing technologies that can detect and characterize a novel virus with this sort of advanced technology you know, on ground in every country, hopefully in every major setting to be able to 
if you see a new infection, you don't know what it is to be able to read out and try to find the, uncover the origin. But then you need to be able to convert those to molecular tests that can deal with a broad differential, right? Most people come in, they don't know if they have COVID or flu or RSV or a host of other things. So we need to have other kinds of diagnostics that can test for a number of different viruses simultaneously in individuals that are ill. And then we need to actually, then when there's certain things that we know are like high probability, we can turn those into point of care, even point of need, like right in the clinic, in the home, if, if possible, tests that could just really pick it up closest to ground zero, right? Because you really don't want people coming into some central place when they may have a deadly virus because either they will get it or give it while they're there. So you really want to have those point of need tests. So the sort of in, in our idea of Sentinel, which is again, a more universal idea, but it's to be able to have ways of detecting and diagnosing these threats wherever, and then to be able to connect that information in real time. We don't use big data enough in medicine. Often it's just a relationship between you and the doctor and what the doctor's recall is about what they've seen. Whereas you really should be able to put the symptoms into a system and, and met pattern match and then have the doctor overlay their knowledge on that. But so we don't use that big data enough in medicine, but particularly in infectious disease where there's another overlay, the network, who you're in contact with matters. And so the other kind of thing is making sure we can integrate the data across the piece. If there's a lot of cases of COVID coming up in the area that you were in, there's a higher probability the person you're seeing has COVID. And so how do we use that information in real time and connect? And then that last piece is empower. And empower is really like empowering every actor in the system. A lot of our work has been around frontline workers, making sure they have the tools and technologies and that we have them, we're basically giving them tools so that they get act, real-time actionable data for themselves in real time that also incentivizes them to give the best data. Like if you, you know, the better data in, the better information out. And so we're trying to build these tools that work anywhere, but also through education, we've developed a number of programs. We've trained about a thousand frontline workers so far in uh, genomics, bioinformatics, diagnostics, other kinds of things like project management, all the things that you need to, to be able to run these programs. We've been working on building out that capacity. So that's sort of the kind of tenets of Detect, Connect, Empower. And all of that is to basically get a global community working together, including every citizen, to, to really stave off and keep eyes on the virus and keep connected and positive with each other while we come up with these vaccines and therapies and other ways of stopping it. Okay, so there's a three components, kind of there's the diagnostic stage, and there's actually kind of three fairly newish technologies that are part of that, which we're going to talk about in a second. Then there's kind of the data component, which is pulling together all the all of those results from all of those diagnostic tests into one place where they can be properly understood and, and interpreted. And then there's the kind of response thing where you're going to actually empower the people down on the ground to figure out how to control these contagious diseases with the knowledge that you've gained by bringing together all, all of this information. Yeah, where is this kind of sentinel approach or proposal at at the moment? It, has it been funded uh, or, and is it getting actually rolled out in any, in, in any countries? Yeah, I mean, so we've been working on versions of this for the last probably 12 years in some version, but it's funny, right, right before, like literally about a month before Ebola hit, we got funding from the World Bank to start something called the African Center for Excellence of Genomics of Infectious Disease. And it was really based on that tenet of, it was based on kind of, came, was born from that emerging disease or diagnosis question of, hey, if we set up the ability to do these kinds of testing, would you find these things? And then we got that, that support to start this program. And, and a lot of it is around education. It was around educating those individuals on the front lines to get this started. And it happened just as Ebola hit. And then, as you said, we published this, basically this uh, final document in December of 2019, just as, as COVID hit. And so we, we have this like very interesting timing. And I often say like the way I describe it is sort of with the Rolling Stone line, like you 
can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. Um, (laughs) At least we had the ability to respond in both cases at that moment, but obviously would have loved to have preparation. So but you know, in the process, we, we basically pivoted and like everybody on the planet became a COVID expert. But the, the thing that's nice about it is everything changed and nothing changed. The systems we had to put in place were the systems we needed. And, and we basically, we had already had capacity to do testing on the ground. But some of the things like we were positioned to do is we always are watching to see what viruses are, are circulating. And whenever anything piques our attention, we make sure the hospitals on ground have the testing available because we they are the reference centers for their countries. And so I'm proud to say that we, um, our collaborators on ground in Sierra Leone, Senegal, and Nigeria had working diagnostics in their hospitals in early February of 2020, basically ahead of any U.S. hospital. And so, you know, we always are moving as fast as we can. We basically, as soon as the genomes were published, we had working diagnostics and we took them out and worked with them to establish them. And then our, you know, those hospitals and research centers became reference centers for their country. Christian Happy, my colleague of 20 years in, in different varieties, and my and my main partner for Sentinel and, and, and all things. He his team sequenced the first case of uh, genome for SARS-CoV in Africa and are now a reference center for the continent. And so we're doing you know those kinds of things. And meanwhile, we're also staving off new infections. Like while this is all going on, other outbreaks are happening too, and they're they're doing all those kinds of detection efforts and they're scaling up their capacity as much as possible. So so they're in it, just like everybody else on the planet, they're in it. And they were very grateful to the Audacious Project that supported us being able to move quickly here. Okay, so the most innovative part of this whole system is the diagnostic technologies, of which there are three really cool ones. And I guess it seems like progress on those is the thing that's making this possible in a way that 20 years ago, it just, it just wouldn't have been viable to, to propose a system like this. So yeah, let, let's talk about those three in a bit of detail so listeners have a good model in their heads of what, what might be coming down the pipeline. Yeah, the three methods are Sherlock, then Kármán, and then metagenomic uh, sequencing. Yeah, what can Sherlock do that previously we couldn't do? Yeah, I'm going to put my conflict out back on the map because, and there's sort of two conflicts I want to be able to note. So I'm I'm a co-founder of Sherlock Biosciences, but I'm also a board member of Danaher that owns Cepheid and IDT. And, you know, fundamentally, I got into that space because I, I realized I want to make an impact and I want to be involved in where technology moves forward. But I do realize that that also complicates what I say here. So please take that take that into account when I speak. But what I'd say is, you know, actually, when you said it wasn't possible 20 years ago, that's not exactly true. Both the technologies have advanced, but we also have not invested in any way in infrastructure and building this. We don't have, you know, there are PCR is an old technology, you know, really kind of advanced in the 80s. And PCR could have done these kinds of detections. I, I, I We wrote an op-ed piece in the New England Journal of Medicine policy piece that essentially said, you know, it's interesting, there are 260,000 clinical labs in the United States. And when COVID hit and and beyond, only 160 of them got FDA approval to set up a PCR test. And only another 40 or so did it without FDA approval. That's 200 of 260,000 labs. No one moved. Actually, we so rely on commercial companies to do this stuff for us. We can actually take any technology. There's lamp technology that I was, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was doing in my own kitchen. Like basically lamp is a technology you can do with a Seuss cooker at home. There are a lot we could do with the technologies we ha- aren't doing. That, okay, so that said, I, mean, I just want to make sure it is known that, that it's not about these technologies saving us. It's about us investing in it and actually empowering people to do things. The thing that I thought kind of would have been impractical in the past is uh, at least like at least the latter two of these seemed like they can test for lots and lots of different 
contagious diseases simultaneously at like a much lower price than doing a PCR for every single one, uh, one after another. So it seems like it, it makes it maybe affordable to have like really broad scale testing for lots of different things and lots of different people in a way that, yeah, previously it might have been outside of the budget. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably a fair comment. I guess I, I should say, I'm, I certainly agree with you that this is the time, <laughs> the time is nigh and, and we've definitely come, there's a lot of convergence happening here, but but it's, it's multiple, multiple things. And, and like I said, PCR is a great technology and isothermal applications, great technologies too, that we could be using better. But we, yeah, so there, there are a lot of technologies that are out there that are interesting. We are particularly intrigued with CRISPR, uh, you know, won the Nobel Prize this year for Jennifer Dunn and Emmanuel Charpentier and has been advanced by a number of terrific folks. It's a wonderful technology. What's amazing about CRISPR is it's found in nature and its job is to detect and destroy viruses, right? It is a bacteria's immune system to phage these viruses that infect them. And they're just really good. It's a very exquisite and elegant system that just looks for these viral sequences. And then, you know, once it detects it, it it cuts it. And there's a version of that where you can do it in a test tube where if the cut happens, you can pair that to a fluorescent readout. Essentially, it's like a, uh, you have a quencher tied to a fluorescence. And when you have these cuts happen, you can disconnect the quencher from the fluorescent readout and, and signal it. Yeah, so listeners can follow this kind of, there's a molecule that would be colorful and be visible, except that, it's, that the color or the, the fluorescence is being quenched by this other thing that it's connected to. And you use the fact that when this Cas protein detects a particular strand, it then just starts cutting RNA all over the place. That causes it to separate and then to, and then to start being colorful and, and, and visible. Yeah, and I can go back and kind of, uh, sorry, I jumped, I jumped through that technology, but I know <laughs> I, I, your, your audience wants to get into the meat of it. Yeah. So let, I let only me, just learned about quenching, so I'm sympathetic. To- <laughs> that's a, yeah, very cool. So yeah, basically, uh, so this is how CRISPR, the way it works, right, is that it, 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 it has it's an exquisite system of just detecting a particular sequence and then performing a very precise cut. And we've been able to you know, use that to great effect in a lot of molecular medicine. Uh, but it's interesting from a diagnostic standpoint, there's particular enzymes, Cas13 and more recently Cas12, that were discovered to have something called collateral effect, which means that the cut that happens has to identify a very precise sequence. So that's where you get that sort of specificity of the cut. But then once it sees that thing, it starts cutting everything. It sort of says, okay, it's, it's go time. We got to start cutting. And and basically, Feng Zhang, who uh, was one of the other pioneers of CRISPR, is a colleague of mine, and he was working with Jim Collins trying to use this as a diagnostic with a you know, kind of very cool effect. Basically seeing that if you then, if all that cutting is happening and these enzymes are doing that, you could then create this thing where you tie this whole system to a fluorescent readout and a quencher. And so once that the thing starts cutting wildly, it'll cut these fluorescents from the quencher and it'll create a signal. And there's a lot of different readouts you can use for this, including ones that can be colorimetric, essentially that can be read out on paper. And so that's very, very powerful for getting a field deployable test. And so what's great about the CRISPR system, like in that, in that context, and again, it's, all, it's one of a multitude of really new, exciting technologies, but why we decided to invest in that space and we like it is it's a molecular test, meaning that you can basically just know a sequence and put in a sequence and make a new diagnostic immediately that can be read out on paper. And so there are these things called rapid diagnostic tests, these point of care tests that have been available, but most of them are based on the protein of a virus like the Abbott Binex, where it's a antigen capture test. It will pick the protein of the virus. Terrific technology. But usually it takes about six months of that lag that you saw. It takes about six months to develop a new one because the proteins are, they're a little more bespoke. They have these certain properties. You have to figure out exactly which will work and how. 
Whereas the genome sequence, it's just literally like a code, like kind of, you know, you just put it in and you, you immediately can target thing. You type it out and you have it going. So, so I think from that standpoint, um, it's a really powerful because of the fact like the, the PCR works in that way that it's fast to deploy, right? The second the virus had it, people had PCR tests going, but this is something that's fast to deploy, even, even arguably a little faster to develop than PCR because its conditions are very uniform, but, uh, but can be you know, rolled out and, and taken to the field and also taken to this massive multiplex that you, you mentioned. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a bit like, for those who are familiar with all of the COVID diagnostics, it feels like a bit of a merger of a, of a PCR, which can detect very small quantities of, of a pathogen because you're going to use a, what is it? Yeah. Polymerase chain reaction to, to increase the amount of DNA and RNA many, many fold with kind of the, the lateral flow test where uh, you can just do it at home or do it in the doctor's lab without having to send the sample away for testing somewhere else, which slows things down and, 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 and is quite expensive. Is that kind of the, the, the main advantage that it has over, over, over the PCR testing? Yeah, that, I mean, those are kind of key advantages is, is the fact that you can do it in a lot of different settings. And there's another advantage we, we do like uh, that a lot of its sensitivity and specificity makes it possible that, and it has sort of an endpoint readout, like the fluorescent in the color is its own readout that can be read out in these various ways very easily. So from that standpoint, we do like that technology. And again, PCR is perfect and is a workhorse. And there's a lot of reasons where certain places that might be the better technology, but we we definitely think there's some really interesting use cases where the CRISPR can have a big advantage. Yeah. So how much does it cost to test someone with one of these kind of Sherlock tests? Yeah. For reference, it looks a bit like lateral flow tests. It's a little thing. You put a a sample in and then it goes up, but... Yeah. Well, to be honest, that that number keeps jumping around is once you, (laughs) like at first, uh, it's uh, one of those things where... Like we are, you know, we're, we're excited about it because it could get to be some, something that you could get the reagents and all the supplies in to be, you know, pennies on the dollar or a dollar per test or maybe even, you know, less. I'm learning a lot about just all the manufacturer process and also like the IP issues. And so a lot of one of the things that we are dedicated to at the very least is making sure that in developing world countries, none of these IP issues exist. But there's, you know, there's all sorts of challenges to manufacturing and get things out. I don't know if I could give you the exact number. We're just trying to make it as small as possible. But I think from that standpoint, one of the things that's really powerful about it, that, so one of the technologies that we developed called Carmen, we're really excited about because it allows you to use miniaturization, um, working with Paul Blaney's lab, doing microfluidics in our first instantiation. We're able to show you could run 64,000 assays at the same time to be able to get about 5,000 different reads. And that allows you to do lots of samples for lots of viruses simultaneously. And one of the coolest things about that is that actually it reduces the cost. We really are able to miniaturize this whole process um, and reduce the reagent cost per test by 300 fold. And so I think we can, you know, get to the point where we can make it very affordable to, like you said, test multiple different viruses at the same time. And that, that would be really powerful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just to paint a picture of how useful this could be for for listeners, imagine you're in Nigeria in a lab out out in a fairly rural area. Someone comes in and it looks like they have, hypothetically, it looks like they have malaria and you've got this pretty straightforward test. You've got the, you've got the little Sherlock, uh, what do you call it? I'm not sure what you call it, the little plastic thing. You're going to take a, take a blood sample, do what I think is like relatively straightforward PCR process, or there's a way of, of amplifying the, the genetic material of the pathogen in these rural areas. And then I think within hours, maybe within half an hour, you can actually say whether the person has malaria or not, which is kind of a, a big step forward on having to take a sample, send it away, transport it somewhere else. And like, probably it's quite a lot more expensive to, to do it using the normal, normal PCR test. 
Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, so that is the aspiration, and that's sort of where it goes to. And I think one of the other pieces that we did some early work on, and other people are also working on, is something we published around the, in, during the Zika epidemic was this protocol called Hudson that is sort of tied to our Sherlock work. But Hudson is uh, uses heat; it's heat unlocking, like heat and chemicals to unlock the viral genome. So there's like the thing is there's the PCR that we talk about in the readout, but there's all this upstream work you have to do about taking the sample, extracting the microbial genomic material and using that to get a readout. But every step of that you can decrease, you can you can make the time shorter and the cost cheaper. And so Cameron Mirabold and Catherine Freehe and my group who led this work were able to show that they could take, so we were doing studying Zika and Dengue at the time and show that you could take samples that are non-invasive like saliva or urine, and you could use heat and chemicals to extract this and do this whole process. So what was really cool about that is there was no blood draw, like even we, these viruses are in a lot of different compartments of our body. And so we could do something that's totally non-invasive and then not need to use any equipment for extraction or any of that or equipment for these other pieces. And so that is that hope that you can really get this to the point where it could be read out. We even have some work that we've been doing at room temperature that this works. And so all that is really exciting and fascinating that it could be something that could be totally end-to-end deployable. Okay, so so that's pretty cool. But I think the, the next thing is is even cooler. And as I understand it from the 2019 plan, so someone comes in, you think they have malaria, test them for malaria. But if they don't come back positive for, for malaria, but you know they're sick, then you kind of want to escalate to a second layer of diagnosis, which you call Carmen. Yeah, what can Carmen do that, that was challenging before and is additional beyond, beyond what Sherlock does? Yeah, so Carmen is just, is that pairing with that microfluidics. It's, uh, you know, so it's a combinatorial process. Um, and Carmen's, after Carmen San Diego, still staying with the kind of, Detective theme, but um, <laughs> essentially it's pairing the kind of power of CRISPR technology with the scale of microfluidic and miniaturization technologies to be able to do this at high, high scale. And that's sort of what we talked about earlier in, in our conversation, this idea that most infections all look the same. Alasa looks like Ebola, looks like malaria, looks like you know typhoid and other things at, at varying stages. So you don't want to have to know exactly what you're looking for. In a lot of cases, you want to do a broad differential that you test for. So this is about having technologies that you could have anywhere in the world that you could test for a number of different viruses. Now, there are other groups that have developed methods like this and and everything we're doing, like we're pretty open to wherever the technology comes. We look to see where we can make a contribution and other groups may have technologies that end up ultimately working better. What we are excited about what we're doing right now and, and the need that we see is that we haven't seen things that can do lots of viruses on lots of samples, right, to be able to scale that. There are technologies that may do that, but may do a differential panel, but usually like still a sample at a time or, you know, something like that. So we, we were really excited that you could say, okay, we could take hundreds of samples and, and run them. I think right now in the instantiation that we have that we just submitted to the FDA in that version, it was something that could run about one machine, about a thousand samples a day, you know, for a, a panel of viruses. And so that's sort of exciting to just be able to do that at scale. Yeah. Yeah, to put it in the most basic language, the idea of Carmen is that you take a sample from someone, a saliva sample, say, and then you test it for 200 different viruses simultaneously with the same test because it's all, so it's also miniaturized that like each, each virus corresponds to a different square on this diagnostic block. And so it's kind of like running, I don't know, I don't know 200 lateral flow tests simultaneously on the, on, on the same piece of paper. Is that, is that kind, of, kind of the idea? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's even cooler, Paul Blaney and his team, that, I mean, that, that it's, it's these droplets, these droplets that that merged, like the, the version that, that kind of that first version that we have, a lot of that was just these droplets combined and they're color coded and you know, based on the, co- like the color. And I think they, 
you know, have an enormous amount of these color codes they can get where they know what, what sample and what target is in there because of it. So that, you know, that version is, was phenomenal. But yeah, and then more recently partnering with Fluidine using their really like great technology in microfluidics to, to do that kind of, to, to have it be these tiny little sort of geographically on the, on the array located where you can find out what, what you're testing for. So it's very, very cool and very powerful. And you, like you said, just completely miniaturized, you can do a lot. Yeah. How technically challenging is it to use, I guess, both at the moment and like, where might it be in, in 10 years time? Yeah. I mean, we are, um, we were supported by DARPA for the first project. And I think actually our program officer, Renee Wormton, who was such a su- supporter of us, she actually came like when we were, we'd put Carmen together and we had published it, we published it in nature. Actually, the paper came out in early 2020, but we'd had that data for a long time and she had come to see what it looked like. You know, what was this thing that could do 5,000 tests simultaneously? And I think she kind of points to the time when she came in the lab and saw that it was like, oh, it was just like the size of your hand. And that was the moment where she was like, oh, this is possible. This is really, so it, it is actually, it's, it's pretty impressive how sort of modest the uh, footprint is for what you, you need to do something really, really powerful. That that technology is still like the thing about all these CRISPR technologies and other types of cutting edge new technologies there is they're relatively nascent and there's a long process between getting something from you know from the lab out into production mode manufacture and so that version of it was not really ready to get out into the world in a big fashion but Fluidine has has a device that that works very very well with what we were doing and so we were able to convert that technology and that biochemistry over to their platform. And that, that is ready to, like you said, we submitted to the FDA and kind of are in conversations with them about where we are in the emergency use authorization pipeline, but it's technology that's working and can work in a clinical lab and that has been running at the clinical lab at Mass General Hospital. So what's remarkable about it is that we went from publishing the technology in first instantiation in 2020 to being able to submit to the FDA in 2021. And now it's in use a year later. It's a, yeah, sorry, yeah. So it is in use. Like I said, still, still looking to get that FDA authorization, but it is, it's working in that lab and it's, it's generating beautiful data, really beautiful data. Does Sherlock or Carmen kind of require complex or expensive machinery or I guess chemicals that might run out during a pandemic or like might be difficult to deliver to, to remote areas? Are there, are, there, are there ongoing inputs that people need? There are ongoing inputs that people need for those types of technologies, but similar to any, I mean, say you need you need that kind of those reagents constantly in PCR or anything like that. One of the you know stuff we've been working on and, and breakthroughs we've made personally, and I think others have made, is being able to lyophilize these things to dry them down so that they can be sent over. I mean, the, what's nice is we we published both in our papers and you know elsewhere that we we've had these technologies working in Sierra Leone and Nigeria in our labs there. So yeah, so they they are there is a set of reagents that you need, but all of these things do, and often we talk about the fact that. There shouldn't be any single winner. Actually, it's not the right thing to do because a lot of times you'll find out like one reagent will run out and then you'll want to switch. And so even when, when clinical labs think about it, they often have a lot of redundancy where they have multiple tests for something because they never want to be stuck when reagents fall out for something. So, so yes, so there are reagents and supplies, but they are very, very, um, that part of it being deployable is the fact that they can be sent over and, uh, basically dried down so that they can kind of work after long periods of being kind of on a shelf. Yeah. So being able to test someone who comes in for hundreds of different viruses and bacteria all simultaneously from one sample, how does being able to tell whether they have a known virus help us tackle unknown viruses or unknown pathogens as well? 
Well, in a couple of ways, right? You know, it's, it's, it's that you're basically a disease detective, right? And any, any piece of information, positive or negative, helps you kind of rule, rule in, rule out. And so if, it's, if you have tests for known viruses, you can you know, take these individuals and you can quickly identify who is known and who needs to continue to be investigated. So from that standpoint, it's helpful, but also kind of that positive loop that you have. Like the more you can give people information, the more there's an incentive to come because you can at least say, hey, I don't have COVID or I don't have flu or I don't have Ebola. And those kinds of pieces of information are, as you, as anyone who's been sick and, and with a diagnosis, they don't know, there's something remarkable about getting a diagnosis, even if it's positive or negative. And so I think it's all that part of the puzzle. But of course, the better we get at characterizing these novel things and, and turning those into tests that could be used on the ground for people, the better. So it's like a slow process of getting that information, but you have to create a process by which you, it's a turn wheel. You know, the more information that comes into it, the faster it moves and the, the more you can kind of keep improving the process and getting better at it. Yeah. So Carmen just seems to me like it could potentially be completely revolutionary. Like I, I'm kind of amazed that people aren't talking about it more because we're just not that far away from me being able to go into the doctor. I feel sick. And then they like take a saliva sample and they're like, okay, bup, 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 the machine <laughs> works. And then they test me for hundreds of different things simultaneously. And they're going to be able to actually diagnose me in a way that currently is just unviable and nobody even 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 really bothers until the condition gets gets to be really bad. Is, is it just that people aren't talking about it because it's so so new? Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. It's, it, you know, it's funny because I, I found, I, I'd like you to go to talk to some folks for me. That'd be great because okay. I, I don't know. Like, it's so interesting because for the longest time, like I've found that it's been really hard to get people to care about pandemics, right? It's, yeah. it's been possible. And finally, I'm like, oh, good. Like, okay, now everybody gets the problem. Everyone gets this is an issue, but everyone only thinks about COVID and nothing else. Like, it's like, <laughs> so now this is a new problem where they're like, oh, what did, you know, we just need to be able to test for COVID. I'm like, no, like you need to test for other things. That's the whole point. Have you learned nothing? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I find it interesting that it's, uh, you kind of have to be hit with multiple viruses to now realize multiple. I don't, I don't know like what it takes for people to realize, but I mean, if anything, there's this sense of, oh, we don't really, do we really need this? And I, I say you do, you don't know, people don't know what it's like to live in a world where you just know exactly what you have. And the thing is people say, another thing I hear people say is like, but, oh, but you know, we don't, what difference does it make, you know, if you know what you have? And I'm like, you can't answer that question because you've never known. Once yeah. you know, and once you have enough people that have RSV and you realize, oh, avocado is what you need when you have RSV, like you can't actually start treating the thing until you know the thing. And it's just so rare and so bespoke and so like, you, you know, there's just no organization. We're not, as humans, we're not organized. We should be organized on how do you respond to these things. Different viruses, different bacteria have different pathophysiological processes and we'd get much better at answering all of those downstream questions if we had the upstream information of what do people have. And we see this with cancer, where people got really into now understanding what exact cancer. And, and you know, it, it, and it matters. As it turns out, it matters. Exact cancers will give you exact therapies. And we've, we're not at that point where we know the exact infection when it's so easy. Cancer is very hard to diagnose. You have to sequence the whole genome and start looking for patterns. Infectious diseases are not. If that, if, if you know, if basically... You know, if there is a enterovirus in you and you are sick, it might well be, you know, like these are, these are easy. It's actually when it comes to precision medicine, one of the easiest things to hit and be successful at. So I don't know why it's not incentivized enough and why it's not prioritized. And it will take, it will take another several trillion dollars for us to think maybe we should be ahead of the other ones. I don't know. 
Uh, so I would, you know, I'd love, uh, I'd love people to think about this, but yeah, we're excited about the technology. We believe in it. And we think that this and other kinds of technology that allow you to test for lots of things simultaneously is what is needed and what will change the world. But, but it, it seems as if it's like not on people's radar enough right now. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of reiterate and dwell on this for, for a minute. I guess I'm especially interested in, in all of this stuff because it can prevent kind of the worst case pandemic scenarios. You know, the next Black Death that actually kills half of humanity and it's like an absolute colossal disaster that takes, takes, takes civilization off the rails. That's like, that looms large in my mind. But it would also be amazing if at the, at the same time we could get rid of all of these contagious diseases that we've just kind of learned to accept because we think that it's possible to get rid of the flu or it's not possible to get rid of all, all of these colds and other like gut diseases that, that people get. And I guess, so, so that's one thing that would be useful even in kind of first world countries is getting rid of these diseases that are that are irritating and affect people all the time, but but aren't the end of the world. But then, of course, there's many countries in the world where contagious diseases are doing much more much more damage. They're a much larger share of the of the health burden, and there we desperately need these diagnostic tools in order to get rid of diseases that are killing very large numbers of of people. And it seems like you know in the past we were just like, oh, people are sick. <laughs> there was this like this broad category of someone is ill, and you know we think it's the spirit, so we think it's this or that. But they couldn't diagnose people, and so it's just a complete dead end to try to figure out what treatments you would do because it turns out that you need different treatments for different conditions and we're kind of to some extent in this state with mental health now where it's like we're kind of like oh this person has depression but in practice depression is probably like 20 different things or maybe it's like it's a you know it's a spectrum with lots of different pieces where different different approaches would be really useful you know different ssris might might help with some conditions but but not others and until we can break it down and figure out you know actually what you have and like what was going to work in that case we can't really make a whole lot of progress on fixing the problem. And likewise, improving these diagnostics, in this case, is just going to make it possible to actually treat people for diseases that presently we just have to have to live with. Anyway, that, that's my rant, just reiterating you're, your point. You're on. Yes, I love it. I love it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that rant. It was very satisfying for me. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the start of last year, when I was talking to pandemic-focused people, they all said... The real worry is people are going to get really interested in this. They're going to spend a whole lot of money and they're going to spend it all on extremely specific COVID stuff that does absolutely nothing when the next thing comes along. Now, it hasn't actually been as bad as that because we've made progress on mRNA vaccines, which are this fantastic platform that can be applied to lots of different stuff. And I guess we're coming along with these diagnostic platforms that might be able to help find the next uh, next pandemic really early. It is true that we spent most of the money on the COVID-19 specific stuff rather than the platforms, but by accident, we have actually almost gotten there. We've gotten so close to where we need to be. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, yeah, I think that, that that's a great thing though, because viruses are all very similar and the technologies that you need to fight one, they're not always, it's not completely plug and play, but there's a lot of overlap. So from that standpoint, that's the part that's been really good. It's like, they're still myopically focused on COVID-19, but at the same time, that still does a lot. And so that, that part I'm excited about, but I do think it is that moment where we should branch out a little bit and look more broadly because these threats are looming. And, you know, I, I, one of the other things I say is like, I, I, I need people to stop calling it a once in a century event. Like they, they keep saying it's a once in a century. It's like, you can't just say that. Like just, you're like, oh, but it's a once in a century event. So we're done. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. And so, you know, ultimately that this is, this may be the new norm. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy right now about the like, lab leak and all of those kinds of things. And I think the verdict is very much, you know, out. I, I'm staying out of that one because I don't honestly know enough about it to, to say something meaningful about it. But I think the main thing I say about that is I don't want it to, I, I think it's very dangerous when we start fighting amongst ourselves and becoming, like, I think the bigger problem is what whatever happened or however these things might get out, the fact of the matter is they can get out in the future. And it could be whether it is natural or accidental release or heaven forbid, purposefully released with a you know bad actor. We're in a new world where all of these things are possible. And 
we have to get our act together as a community and we have to build systems of trust to really support each other in this because there's a, there's a lot to do and it's a very precarious road ahead. I always go back to that um, uh, from the book Contact by Carl Sagan when the m- main protagonist is asked if she had an opportunity to meet an advanced race that built a you know, technology to get to earth, like one question, she said, well, you know, what was the question you'd ask? And she said, how did you do it? How did you survive your technical adolescence without destroying yourself? And we are very much in that part, I think, of our, uh, we are in a technical adolescence where we have all sorts of technologies that are more powerful than ever before. And God knows what we'll do with it, you know, in, in, the, in the years ahead. And I think we have to build systems where we, you know, we move, advance those technologies, but we have to also do it in a way of like trust and respect. Viruses thrive when we fight amongst ourselves. Um, so there's a lot of dangers there. So I said there was three different really cool diagnostic technologies that were part of the Sentinel system. First was Sherlock, then there was Carmen. And the third one is metagenomic sequencing. So kind of if you do Carmen, you've tested for hundreds of viruses or hundreds of pathogens and none of them have come back positive. Now you're like, oh, this is is a bit more of a mystery. Maybe it's something new. Maybe it's something really obscure. We actually just want to send off the, the sample and get the full thing sequenced. So just sequence all of the DNA, all of the RNA that's in there. And then hopefully we'll be able to use that data to, to figure out what's going on. Is that the long and the, the short of it? Yeah, that's right. So metagenomic sequencing is meaning all like, like big genomic sequencing, sequencing everything in a sample, but just it's sequencing in general, be it metagenomic or not. It's just the ability to read out a lot of what's in the sample is very powerful. There in COVID, Amplicon-based sequencing has been really potent. It's a little bit more directed, like you have to actually have guides for the thing you're looking for, but you can put guides for a lot of different things. So there's just ways of in varying ways, enhancing, getting more and more of a broader read of what is in the sample. And those are the kinds of technologies that we can have in more, at this point, a little bit more advanced labs, but, but, but the kinds of labs you could have in every country on, you know, on the planet and, and have even in a lot of regional centers. And that would be that ability that if something comes up and, and all the kind of standard tests that you have run and you don't know what it is, you can basically try to put it through. And it's not always possible. Like you have to understand it's a you have to, the virus has to be there and the virus has to be in the sample that you're looking for. And microbes in general are pretty stealthy. Something like Zika is causing a lot of damage, but for only being there in a very small amount and being there for only a short period of time. And so there's the kind of what they call like the hit and run microbes, the ones that come in, do their damage, and then they disappear. And so there are still a lot of, like, it, it should be known that there's still a lot of things that even with all of this technology might be missed. But that's why we also use lots of different kinds of, uh, there are technologies like serology-based technologies that can be better at finding the hit and run. Basically, the, the microbe comes in, it does its damage, it then disappears, but your immune system's still reacting to it, and we can read out what your immune system is doing to figure out what the perpetrator was. But again, it's all disease detective. You're trying to find and all these different clues. The way we've built Sentinel is not a place to test our CRISPR-based technologies. It's a place to test and deploy and utilize the best technologies out there. And we do believe that it's a whole series of technologies. So I think the innovation we're trying to put forward is as much about how we do these things and how we create these hubs where many people can come and bring their technologies and we can be honest about what's working well and we can give people feedback. Like we want to be able to give people feedback and say, hey, we tested your technology. It's good for this. It's not good for this. You know, these are uh, what you could do to advance it. This is how we're going to use it. So, you know, trying to do the most unbiased process we can, but really ultimately what motivates, you know, me at least when I get up in the morning is about solving the problem. 
And so it's not about the technologies I'm advancing to solve the problem, but solving the problem and being part of that process. Yeah. Yeah, Andy, Andy Weber in our interview had this kind of vision for having a genomic sequencer in, in every doctor's office that's used as a matter of course. In a way that well, might be a lot simpler because it's just kind of, there's one thing, you know, connected to the Wi-Fi, so you collect the data from the sequencer in, in some central repository. Presumably that's, it's a lot more expensive and that's why you've designed it with this kind of three-stage system where you want to start with the easiest, fastest, cheapest thing first and then only escalate to the sequencing when it's really necessary to get a diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, so certainly there's a there's a future where we all have sequencers in our home, right? I mean, it's uh, and again, you don't ever want to come to a doctor's office's central location to find out what you have, where you can avoid it. You're sick. You don't even want to get out of bed. Like, why would you? So there's a world in which you actually really want it, like you know, at, at your home. But that we're not we're not quite at that that world yet. And so yeah, it's it's interesting because we are building technologies that we hope will one day be obsolete, but. It's solving the problem now, advancing the field where it needs to go, and then and then seeing. But I, I have a feeling for some time there will be a utility of these different tiers. You know, of you don't need to really read out everything in your genome every time you get sick. Like this is a process we did for encephalitis. Uh, meningitis and encephalitis are different inflammation of different parts of your brain's central nervous system, and they cause a lot of damage, and they you know can, can lead to coma and death. And what's unfortunate is so many cases of encephalitis go undiagnosed. And we and others, like Joe DeRisi and Mike Wilson, have done studies where we've studied people with encephalitis and sequenced everything in there. And you can sequence it to pieces and you still often don't find anything. So a lot of times it's auto-inflammatory or it's one of these hit and runs. And then when you do find something, it's often like about eight things. So why would you necessarily sequence every single time? It might not make the most sense. So at least for now, for all practical purposes, it's actually like more sensitive if you actually try to find the thing you're looking for instead of getting everything coming up just to find something. So like for things like encephalitis, we think that that kind of panel test is probably better for some period of time. Yeah. Speaking of that, when I was pitching the, you know, let's just sequence everyone who's sick all the time and we'll use that to, to pick up new pandemics. A lot of people have this kind of skeptical reaction that they're like, you're taking all of these massive genomic sequences of like everyone's spit samples every time they're sick. Aren't you just going to end up with this massive pile of extremely hard to interpret data that's full of, you know, harmless viruses that are in people, harmless bacteria that are in people all the time, their own genetics, you know, other fragments that happen to be there. Wouldn't it be extremely hard to take all of that and actually identify that a new pathogen is in there and that a new pandemic is starting? Are they right to be worried about that? They're, they're right to say that we've got like data problems and the data is expensive and mining through all that stuff is part of it. Yeah, one of the things we like about Carmen is it's so sensitive and specific. It's just that the, the readout is lovely. It's like not, 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 there it is, you know? And, and oftentimes it's, it's pretty cool because it's not like you don't usually find just the one virus in there. You'll find the one virus plus like an anello virus because anello viruses are in a lot of blood samples. So you usually see like, it's, it's like almost, it's even better. You find like the thing and then like something else that's usually in samples and then not anything else. So it's a very satisfying output. And I think that, yeah, and you don't have that kind of all that other data that you're mining. But again, it's, it depends. Like if you could get all of the data and the data is meaningful and we have an understanding of how to interpret it, it's great to get it. And we always do, whenever we develop a new test, we always like for Carmen, when we published the work, every sample that we tested with Carmen, we also metagenomic sequenced to say what else was in there, what could have we, you know, seen and did we miss? And and generally what we found is yeah, there was a whole lot of noise and other kind of random junk. And then, you know, one of the powers is it, it found what it was supposed to find and it didn't find other things. So yes, definitely there will be a lot of data and there will be the human reads are often it depends on what sample you're testing or 
can be an issue, cannot be an issue. You can just purge them, but you are generating a lot of data and throwing it away and all of that. But to me, it's more about what solves the problem and does the best thing. And I think a lot of times this technology can be even more sensitive, you know, when you just know what you're looking for. So, yeah, I I think I didn't interrogate Andy on this too much because he's not a genetic scientist after all. But I guess my thinking was, presumably what happens is if we had a whole lot of these samples coming in from doctor's offices, we would train the computer to just recognize this is their DNA. This is like a viral strand that's in almost everyone. I've seen this a million times before. This is just a bacteria that's normally in the mouth. Like, And just to, to throw away all of that stuff that you're used to seeing in these samples that you've seen many, many times before and that you can kind of pinpoint what they are. And then you're just left with probably a much smaller set of stuff that you haven't seen before. And then maybe you could also train the, the system to try to identify, does this look like a pathogenic? Does this look like a virus of concern that we've seen somewhere else? So could it be a new strain of something? And then to, I guess, so you just have to do a lot of filtering and, and narrowing down. But with enough data science, with enough ML, perhaps this is a solvable problem in the long term. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the kind of thing where it's like the more you get those systems in place, we don't have enough data to answer those questions now. Like a lot of times people are like, oh, can you predict a pathogenic virus? I'm like, No, because we don't know what a pathogenic virus looks like. For the most part, we don't, when we see the sequence, we don't know what it means. We don't even understand enough about, like, we're pretty even in rudimentary parts of understanding what these viruses are doing in the body and how their genomes are working. My group just published a paper, Shira Weingarten Goodbye, a terrific postdoc in my lab, just led led our uh, work in my lab that published last week in Cell that essentially was really studying, like, what is the virus presenting to the immune system? Like, we think of the spike protein and things like that, but what else is it? presenting. And there's these classic proteins that we can identify with these open reading frames that just tell us, oh, a protein is here. But other scientists have been finding that there are like these other elements in the genome. We call them non-canonical open reading frames, so non-like canon open reading frames, things that are off the beaten path. And in the paper, uh, Shira and, and the team showed that those are actually presenting to the immune system too. And in fact, they're stimulating a T-cell response that in some cases is stronger than the strongest T-cell response to the proteins we know. So what's all going on there? Viruses are tiny, but they're really compact and they, they have a lot of stuff they're programming. For, to be able to have this tiny little genome come in and do all this damage, they're acting as master regulators. They're turning on and off things. They're switching things. And until we understand all of the pieces of that, we won't know, you know what is bad and what is not. So the more we know, the more we investigate. I, I kind of describe where infectious disease is at is where the modern medicine was at before the human genome was sequenced when you're like kind of looking at like one part of the genome and trying to say something where you're like, you don't know, you're, you're, you're shooting in the dark. You have like, you're, you're trying to put a puzzle together with a couple of pieces. You don't know what's going on. But once we actually start, every person comes in, you know what they have, you see the genome and you start connecting that with symptoms and cases and all of that stuff. Then we can start, the whole thing will fill out, but we're just in a place where we're so in the dark to say anything about what's a pathogenic virus is, is almost impossible because we don't know enough about what our non-pathogenic virus is looking like. And so, so like that, that's something to say that that's one of the reasons why we also want to look in nature. We don't only want to look in clinical cases. We want to look at the same virus but that's out in nature and say, why did, why did this one make, jump into humans and why did this one make people sick and this one didn't? So that's sort of why there are all these projects of these kind of the, the one health concept of making sure we understand every, everything in the entire ecosystem. Okay, so to wrap up this section on these three diagnostic technologies, Sherlock, Carmen, and the, and, the, and the genetic sequencing, and to kind of paint a picture of how useful they could be, I guess we could imagine if this system had been in place in Wuhan in 2019, 
then potentially when, when the first person comes in who has COVID-19, which might have been, you know, comes into a hospital or a GP's office, which might have been as early as November 2019 or possibly possibly even earlier, they would have come in, they would have taken the Sherlock test right away for whatever it most looked like, like the flu, and it comes back negative. They would have taken the common one for a much broader range of respiratory illnesses, comes back negative. So they're like, huh, this is, this is, this is worrying. They send it off for genetic sequencing the same day. Maybe the next day it comes back and the system sets off a red alarm that there's a new virus sample in here. It looks like SARS-CoV-1, so it's like... It looks extremely similar potentially to a well-known already existing pathogenic concern virus. And then maybe weeks, potentially months before we really got a full-on response, things could have been like thrown into, into high gear in order to contain this new possible pandemic. Is that the right picture to people to have in their, in their minds? Yeah, it, that's right. It could, you know, so it could have happened even faster than it did happen. You know, in the case of, of that, like I, it still was one of the fastest turnarounds we've ever had to a new viral threat emerging and a sequencing. And that part of it was because you know there was a, a, a lab there, a center of excellence that could pick up something like that. And you know, and again, in the kind of in those conspiracy theorists about you know did it leak from the lab? Like how coincidental was it that the a lab that was expert in doing this work is where it happened? And I'd say you know the funny thing is basically the the whole concept of emerging you know disease or emerging diagnosis is you pick it up where you're looking for it. So. It, frankly, it could have happened. It could have not been in Wuhan where this thing was originated. It's just discovered where there are, is expertise, right? And so that's the thing that's like not surprising. It's like, you know, the, the reason why we have so many UK variants is not because the UK has more variants. It's because the UK has a really robust testing program. So from that standpoint, it's very possible that the, that the Wuhan virus, you know, once called the Wuhan virus, did not come from Wuhan. It just was detected in Wuhan where they had the expertise to do so. So from that standpoint, I think that they were pretty, they're pretty on top of it. And I, I published an article in January, of, I think it was January of 2020 for Time Magazine, where they asked me to kind of like write about what was going on here. And, and I like, you know, you always look back at what you wrote and you're like, does it stand the test of time? And it was interesting. I think it does. It like basically said, hey, you know, we're actually in a really good position. They caught this thing early. The information is there, but we have to move and we have to get diagnostics in every part of the country now. And then very specifically, I got a lot of pushback because at the time people hated talking about viruses mutating. And uh, even though I had published several papers about mutations in the Ebola genome, but I, I, pu- I pushed hard and I kept it in there and I said, but this virus can mutate and we never know where it's going to go and we have to move quickly. So I feel comfortable that that did stand the test of time where you uh, were ultimately, we were ahead of the game. We had gotten ourselves in a good competitive position. But but again, one of the other things I said there is like, it's a respiratory virus, so it moves quickly. So we have to move as quickly. And we have to make sure the virus doesn't get anywhere where it can mutate. And I think part one succeeded and part two and three did not, right? We didn't move quickly. Like we had that information, but yet the US did not have testing available until March in most you know states, which is just way too long with a respiratory virus. I think even in March, it was extremely limited testing. Exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. So I mean, Marsh was like when they could start doing testing, essentially. And then, like I said, and then even from there, getting into June, July, like people were still waiting for, nobody was setting up that testing, right? Those those 260,000 clinical labs, only 200 of them had testing. And the other ones were just calling manufacturers being like, where are my kits? I mean, it was, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's when you think about it, it's just uh, like that cannot happen again. And in the meantime, the virus didn't mutate just once, but twice and three times and four times. And uh, and it just, they pick up speed and we were not... Keeps getting more contagious. Yeah. So 
The Sentinel plan that I saw from 2019 was focused on countries like Nigeria or the DRC because of, I guess, potentially because of this background dealing with hemorrhagic fevers and like the serious contagious diseases that they have there. But presumably things would be a bit different in a country like the United States. So I'd like to maybe think about how these these ideas could be applied to the, to the US for a bit. The Advanced Molecular Detection Program at the US CDC was recently awarded uh, $1.7 billion for sequencing in order to build, you know, proper enduring capability to prevent pandemics and potentially bioweapons attacks as well, which seems seems really fantastic. Because for reference, its budget is usually $30 million. So it's a substantial scale up of, of, of that program. Yeah, if you were making a plan for controlling a pandemic in the US, how would you spend that kind of money? So that was very welcome news. And obviously, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes you get what you need. Uh, wish we had had this at least early in the outbreak, but I understand why the government prioritized some of the things that they prioritized. And so I, I respect that and the mRNAs were very successful. And so I'm, I'm happy about that. But I think it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I understand why they prioritized what they prioritized, but all of it, it was necessary. And so they could have also prioritized this earlier um, or pushed it forward. But I think that, you know, they, they're doing the right things. They are, they are creating centers of excellence and research centers to like push this technology forward. And a lot of the, the big advances in genomic technologies, both from the experimental side, the sequencing and the you know, different kinds of technologies, as well as the bioinformatics the tools are coming out of academic centers. And so you want to support those academic centers and give them significant investment to move that forward and to be able to scale this technology the way it needs to. But then you really need to build that capacity into the public health system. And so we've been working actually with the CDC since for the last about five years through the CDC and the Massachusetts Department of Health. We had a program where we had, in the end, you know, folks from the CDC as well as eight departments of health come and stay with us at the Broad Institute where I work. And uh, we had two different week-long programs, one in genomics and the other one in bioinformatics that they've all participated in year after year. And it was awesome. Like what was really great about that is it's through this coordinated education that you also can get coordination. Like basically the way we designed that curriculum was it was a um, experiential learning. We had people bring their own, uh, in the first instance, like rabies samples, hepatitis we did later. But in the first instance that we said, okay, everybody, let's just like everyone has rabies in their backyard, bring it here. We'll all sequence them here at the Broad. We'll collectively analyze it together and we'll look at a map of what's happening with rabies in the, we started the program in New England. So it was in the New England area. And then we were expanding that program across the country when COVID hit. So that was a really like a fulfilling experience and really wonderful to work with the departments of health. And one of the things I learned about spending time with folks from the departments of health across the country is just, they're really terrific humans that go into public health that really want to like make their states and their countries and their planets better. They're usually really under-resourced and have a lot of competing demands and are getting switched off of things so often. And what was really kind of tough about that is that year after year, they learned this technology and they were really well-positioned. And then we'd sort of try to keep doing it. And they're like, well, our budget for sequencing is like essentially what it, a budget that could do 20 samples. And you're like, well, what are we training you for if there's no resources to actually do anything with that? And so that was always really tough. And so I think that Hopefully it comes with that broader education, that kind of coordinated education across the country so that everyone is speaking the same language and has the most advanced tools at their, at their fingertips, but then is coordinated and sharing information. There's a lot of things that also need to happen about how do we share this very sensitive data, but very important data to share quickly. And so there's other processes. So, uh, so sorry, coming to your question specifically, I, I think I, I went into my experiences it would be supporting the academic centers, 
so that they can advance the technologies and, and serve as resources to the kind of public health units and be able to, to also serve for surge capacity and follow-up when, when what often inevitably happens is that the departments of health then you know, have to worry about the next problem. There's somebody who can kind of pick up and work collaboratively to that. So then supporting, but supporting those departments of health to do more testing than they're doing now and be able to do that surveillance because they are the front line. Those are, I think, kind of the two key pieces. And then really the bioinformatic tools to connect all that information in real time and that synergy of getting that data connected to really important metadata that would make us be able to make more meaningful conclusions from what we find, but do so in a way that protects the individual, but gives as much visibility as you can while still protecting the individual. And that that's a dance, right? Like you have to know what's going on with the virus. It's, it's very interesting. Like this data becomes the most sensitive, but it's the one where we need it the most in real time. Like we need to know where the person that might have Ebola is going, but we also need to like give that person freedom. While So I guess ultimately one of the things you'd have to build into it is trust. Like how do you create systems that build trust and sustain it and earn it? And that's, that's a, you know, funding also needs to be put to that to make sure that that's done well. Because the whole system collapses if you lose that. Do you have any idea how much it would cost to cover the whole U.S. population or close to the whole U.S. population with a diagnostic system like the Sentinel one? Is that something that's within kind of the, the potential budget of, uh, of U.S. federal government and state budgets? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, like, if you think about the, the budget that we spend, diagnostics are such a tiny part of the cost. I mean, frankly, like the thing is what we had already during COVID What's kind of remarkable about COVID is that we, um, we had a tremendous amount of testing that we were doing. We just tested the privileged people over and over again instead of testing people who needed it when they needed it. I mean, another paper that we put out uh, was called uh, The Case for Altruism in Diagnostic Testing. It called out a few, you know, pretty remarkable examples, but it was, but it was what everybody was doing where an, an example was that the NFL spent $100 million testing 7,000 of their kind of, you know, team, team members and employees over and over again, you know, a uh, hundred million dollars just testing just members of the NFL. I think it was about a million tests, which found a few hundred cases and still did not stop outbreaks. It didn't stop outbreaks. But then meanwhile, the, the communities around them were burning to the ground and not, and people weren't getting tested. I mean, that, and that, that is just, I said, it, it's not the NFL. Every team did it every, you know, and people congratulated them for doing that. And every school did it. We, yeah, of course, if we use tests smartly, it's such a small part of the budget. I don't know the exact cost, but it's not, it's definitely compared to what we spend on overly, you know, patented and overly exploited drugs for a lot of these diseases. It's, a, it's still a fraction. So I would say, I, you know, I, I'm happy to try to do that math, but I, I know it's going to be very economical, particularly for the amount of morbidity and mortality costs and hospital costs for catching these things early. So yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that we were clearly happy to spend quite frivolously during this pandemic on the testing that we did do. Yeah. So it seems like maybe the easiest, like most practical way that things like actually might go is that you would build out a system like this in a country with a unified health service, like the NHS in the UK, which can potentially just say as a matter of policy, this is going to be an important way that we're going to spend our money is to have diagnostics in all of our different facilities that and, and operate this kind of sentinel system and pay for it, pay for it essentially. And I guess also to do it, you know, not do it over two years, but do it over 20 years as this, as this technology matures and, and becomes cheaper. And then kind of it doesn't stand out as a massive expense. It just starts to seem like obviously the natural thing that you would do as part of your di- diagnostic system to, to deal with contagious diseases in your country. 
Yeah. And I, I don't think it needs to be 20 years, but it could be over the next, you know, five to 10 years, sure. Just to come back to the, to the question of cost, I guess in the US to cover everyone, are we thinking like $10 billion a year or something like that? Is, is there any way of giving kind of a, a sense of the sense of the magnitude? You know, I just, I haven't done that, the economics yeah, of it. Yeah, I could yeah. do some on the fly <laughs> stuff, but Absolutely. the thing is, right. The other thing is that a lot of the tests, like a lot of the tests could be as, as little as a couple of dollars. The other big issue is that the, it depends on what, how are you doing it and who's doing it and, and where, like the economics will change a lot. Like, and, and again, that same paper that we published that policy piece in the New England Journal, it was about, it was essentially the kind of the issues it talked about. One, it talked about the fact that, you know, not enough labs just set up testing, but then it just talked about the extraordinary amount of price gouging that was going on. And we, you know, had a couple of flagrant examples where we showed that people are, were charging $2,000 a test, right? But I know personally when I had to do it at some point that, you know, I had to pay several hundred dollars for a test. And you're like, I'm going to do it because I need to know what's going on here. But the economics will change a lot, but you, you, there are tests like that you could do for about $5 a test. And then you have to just decide. So to, to, to kind of do that, the way my thought process is figure out what tests there are and which ones you could use and how cheap you could get them. And you could get them to kind of dollars test and then figure out who you test and how you prioritize that. The more information you have about the more kind of community buy-in, if you're like looking for particular infections, the more you have a sense of what's circulating the more directed you can be in with the tests that you run. And so I think the things I the pieces of information I don't have are how many people, you know, are sick per year. And I, I said, I know it's, I know it's a large number. So and how many I, tests I, you'd need to run. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and, and also like, cause right now there's how many people actually come and ask for tests, but that's actually probably a small fraction of people that would, if there was a test, right. Cause most people don't go to the hospital cause there's no tests, but there might be more. So I think, I think getting that collective information, but again, it's still going to be very small relative to the lost labor, life, hospital time, like all of those things. It's, yeah, I, I would welcome you know that exercise being done. I'm happy to do it myself. I just haven't done it in preparation for this, uh, this meeting. Yeah, but totally. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, slightly running ahead. Uh, you're, you're trying to get it like actually scaled up and working in, <laughs> working in specific places. And I'm like, how much would it cost to do the entire United States? What about yeah. the whole world? <laughs> yeah. It's easy for me to ask, I guess, because I'm not going to actually actually have to do it. <laughs> I can, I, yeah, certainly, I would say it wouldn't take long to come up with something, and it would, and I'm certain that it would be economically sound to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess probably the answer is also no. But is, has anyone done kind of a cost benefit analysis test? I guess economists have been doing this over all of the COVID nineteen responses and saying like all of these COVID nineteen actions, like paying for vaccines, paying for testing, they pay themselves back like many many multiples. It's just so obvious that we should be spending on this because it's so much cheaper than requiring people to just stay at home. And I guess like a similar logic might apply to this that you know there might be a significant upfront spend on all this diagnostic machinery, all, all of all of the materials, but then you stop pandemics that can cost you ten, twenty, thirty percent of GDP that can kill enormous numbers of people. So the return on investment might be very high. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I, I know people have been doing it. It's, it's, I, I just happen to not have been one of those people. But I mean, I think a lot of people have made the economic case for this in great detail. And I think that even this one, this one pandemic, the cost of it would pay for the next 20 years of what we could have done to save it off. Right. Uh, so the, the interesting thing is it's probably still economical on an annual basis. It probably is beneficial. And then when you think about the pandemic, it might stave off. It's it's like a no brainer. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a tiny tiny fraction of what the cost can be to society. I mean, I know like for example, Ebola was just you know about forty two billion dollars to those local economies. I mean, I think that's a and that was only you know about thirty thousand confirmed cases. But you can see what the impact is mm. if any virus gets out. Yeah, uh, it will devastate an economy. So having a system in place to pick it up is key. Yeah. 
All right, yeah, next, I'd like to put, I guess, a couple of critiques to you on like how, how practical this whole system might be or ways that it might potentially fail or, or, or struggle. I guess, yeah, first off, I'm curious to ask you, you know, if this whole system were put in place, what would be the most likely way for it to fail or like not, not achieve as much as you'd like, you know, if, if, if you had to guess? Yeah, so we, so we I mean, thought about this like in, in varying ways. There are many different fail modes for this kind of technology. I think a lot of it is, again, misuse will be a really important thing to, to watch for. Because a lot of the, the technologies we also talked about, we didn't, we haven't talked about the fact that things like mobile applications and Bluetooth and geolocation, all of those things are also really important and will be beneficial to a system, but have so many potential misuses. So I think probably the single biggest challenge to the to the use of this is is protecting against misuse. And uh, you know, for for. At the end of the day, viruses are insidious, deadly threats that weaponize your neighbor from you. And if people don't manage that well, people can get pretty hysterical. And and we've seen it in, you know, with HIV, with COVID, with Ebola, so many different cases in which people become, the culture becomes very toxic. And so I think that that's one of the things that we try to build into everything we do. And that's just, it's important is this idea of, of making sure that the systems we put in place are ones that are thought through about how they work for the communities and that every potential misuse is considered. You know, if you want to really stop a pandemic, you need incredible amounts of visibility. And it's, it's really challenging when you have like all of our, like, you know, the next generation of child, like kids out there on TikTok and Instagram and all these places sharing all of this really personal private information with no problem. <laughs> But then when it's like your location as it, as it relates to potentially spreading COVID amongst the community, nobody wants to talk about it. And you're like, what? I don't, what? Like, I, I, you know, there's part of me that's like, what's going on here? Like, you're literally giving away the most personal private information, but yet the thing that could actually save a life, you're afraid to share. Yeah. But the, at the same time, there's a reason for that. It, you know, it, it can be weaponized in such a way, it can be so stigmatized that it's really heavy. And so I think that what we've been doing is we've been piloting these tech types of technologies in very specific settings and really working. So when we started developing it, we were developing it for Harvard at Harvard. And, and the way I pitched it is the Facebook app for outbreaks that starts within a close-knit community, a place where you can test and see how things go and, and get buy-in and local buy-in and show utility to people. Uh, but like Facebook can be co-opted in all sorts of bad ways. So it has to be protected and, and, and nurtured at every step. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, it is about you know, showing the use case in some environments in which there is trust and then being able to then roll those out to other places while maintaining that level of personal. I think that I often say public health needs to be local, frankly, because you can't have somebody in Washington trying to figure out what went, went down in some school somewhere else. Whereas like the local janitor will have more information about, oh, well, actually there's this bathroom that everybody uses that, you know, that you yeah. actually want to empower every single person on site to be able to do this in the right way with people they trust and in a way that builds trust. So when you ask me, what are the challenges? There are many, many of them, but that's probably the one that's most foremost in my mind of how do you build these technologies and how do you roll them out in a way that they are used well and where we remember that the virus is a threat, not each other. And it's, and it's tough. And I think there's a lot of work we have to do to build trust in society broadly in order to get there. Yeah. Yeah. When I was trying to envisage, you know, the Sentinel program being, being scaled up and thinking like, how might this go wrong? 
it kind of all came back to just like logistical and scaling challenges. It's just, it's so hard to build big programs that work really well that involve coordination of so many different groups. So it's like, I guess, whether you're doing this in Nigeria or you're doing it in the United States, it seems like this is going to require coordinating with tens of thousands of different medical centers, potentially hundreds of thousands of different staff who are going to have to learn these new programs and figure out how to send this data. I mean, the IT system, especially across you know the US, it's such a, such a fractured medical system. You're going to have to get all of these people figuring out how to send all of this data to some central place where it can be analyzed, ideally. And as I understand, you know, many medical centers in the UK, in the US, they're struggling even to get electronic records of just people's people's GP visits. Medical IT just seems to be an extremely difficult, a difficult area. Yeah, so there's just like all of these practical hurdles that I imagine can be overcome, but it's going to require like real expertise and, and, and serious, serious work. Yeah, is that, is that something that, that concerns you as well? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, th- th- it's exactly right. Uh, if you really are going to try to scale this across the country, it, you, it's daunting, but yet, I mean, I, this is the kind of thing I always talk about. It's like Coca-Cola somehow gets like their Coke bottles to like the, the most distant village in the middle of Ebola. Like we're trying to figure out how to get, you know, PPE to people. And somehow you see like the, the Neko car going by. So whenever you incentivize it in a capitalistic way, people find a way. And so I think that that's what we need to do. This, this is a place that there is no kind of collective threat, like a viral threat in humanity. So the only thing that could kind of bring people together against a common enemy in the same way is an alien invasion. And ultimately, this is the moment. And if we can't collectively solve these problems, then there's something on us. Like, of course, it's challenging and it's huge, but that's exactly the thing that we need to do. And when you do that, you'll probably unlock a lot for a lot of other things as well. So you're right. The medical system is really fractured in this country. It's really hard, but infectious disease medical system can be pretty contained. And and that one piece could be managed and organized and solved. And then in doing so, it can create an infrastructure that can be the backbone of other care for for people. So, I mean, I, I think it's one of the most important things that we could do is it and I think, you know, if I have that opportunity to speak to people in the government yeah, through this podcast, I think it would be one of those things to say is that this is that this is the moment in time to put an investment in building out a medical system that is more universal and that could have a broader impact in, in healthcare. And what's nice about it is when you think about what you need to do to solve an outbreak, it crosses clinical medicine, statistics, epidemiology, public health policy, you know, psychology, every part of it you need to understand and you need to get right. And if you can, you're building a robust system that has applications to a lot of things. And when, when we talk about precision medicine, it's like the most precise thing is just finding a virus in your system. And so it's a starting point for all of the things that you need to do and build to build a robust healthcare system and a, and a, and a connected society. So I think it's a challenge, but it's a challenge we should embrace. Yeah, the, the Sentinel program, as as described there, kind of in, involves just coordinating tons of people. And I, I was I was thinking as I was reading the plan, is there any way of like shrinking the number of people who can be involved? I guess, yeah, in, in, in Andy Weber's interview, he kind of envisaged this, yeah, lovely futuristic scenario where everyone has this kit in their house, the gene sequencing kit, and that has this like nice cleanness to it that like, it's like everyone's using their Amazon Echo or something like that. And then it all just gets sent through the internet to this central uh, repository held by a private company, I suppose. And then it, then it can all get analyzed there. And then other people don't have to be involved you could just like ship it out in the mail i guess i'm I'm slightly just spitballing here but yeah do do you think there's any ways of potentially simplifying it where maybe this can be like slightly cordoned off from from the rest of the medical system or is that just the kind of thing that someone like me who doesn't understand what's going on would would say yeah it could be it it, it certainly could be because that's the thing you don't need all of people's medical information to solve this one thing and one of the big impediments to doing this work is that 
it went through a lot of immigrant communities and there are a lot of undocumented people in those immigrant communities who didn't want to come to attention. And when we build the system, we don't need to even build a system where we have access to you or long-term or your information. We need to know you when you are, like there's a, there's a, a short period of time where you're, you are a person of interest, you are carrying a virus or, or have been exposed to a virus that we need to watch. But we could frankly just give you a, like a burner phone that, that we contact with you just for that period of time. And as soon as you're off the grid, you can go off the grid. So I, I do think that that is an approach that is a viable one of making it a system that's outside of the general medical system that is only related to what we need to know for like a particular pandemic threat for a particular point in time, and then you can go off the grid. And so that is another uh, way to approach it. All right, let's push on and talk about funding for programs like this. I guess, you know, ideally we'd like to see this kind of system, this diagnostic system set up in countries all over the world. Because yet yeah, who is best placed to fund these kind of pilot programs and then and then to then to scale them up? Is it sort of national governments or are there international organizations that should be involved? It's probably all of the above in different ways, right? We, what we found is in general that a lot of the governments move really slowly and there is a real place for philanthropy early in the outbreak to kind of move these things forward. That said, philanthropy is a a dangerous thing because it, it means that a small set of people get to make a decision as to who moves and who doesn't move, often in, in conversations that happen in, in back rooms and that, that don't have a merit base. And so I do know that that one issue with the philanthropic kind of version of this is that certain people got chosen and certain people didn't. And a lot of people who had a lot to contribute didn't. But so those, those I like to sort of say what's good and bad about it. Philanthropy is really powerful and it allows people to make those kinds of moves that you can't in a bureaucratic administration but it also then does anoint the few that get to respond and, and we need more uh, more voices. Yeah, there also just isn't enough money in philanthropy to scale these things. They can kind of take the risk of testing it out. But That's right. I think that's right. But they, they can definitely, uh, they can help move the needle and they can help kind of in, in, in quick moments of crisis. Then, I mean, yeah, then it's governments, you know, national governments as well as international organizations where possible. And then there could be an economic model, right? There There is like an economic model of having it where, if you are a company like Amazon or you're a company like big oil companies where you have a lot of employees that are in regular contact with each other, there should be an incentive to keep them healthy. I mean, I know a lot of these companies are just happy having people permanently ill and coming in, but there is lost productivity there, you know, and there's definitely a lot of lost life and a lot of pain that's unnecessary that's inflicted on people. But but even even if you are still forced to go to work, there's lost productivity when you're just not at your peak. And so... Ultimately, I think that we can also push for having a private, you know, industry supporting this or, you know, what is kind of remarkable about COVID, right, is that people spend a year not getting sick from the flu and not getting sick from a lot of other things. And then they realize that even though the circumstances were kind of bananas, how much more productive they can be if they're not sick all the time. And so you realize that there is a very specific, clear economic case that can be made. And I think that you could bring it into having more private industry playing a part in supporting their communities to do better too. Yeah, I wonder if there is a model here. I guess I guess this isn't really ideal from a public health point of view, but if these tests get cheap and easy enough, then you could have a kind of direct-to-consumer model where you have a company that manufactures them and sells them to people potentially for not that much money, and then they send them back in and then that company can collect and use use that data, but but also you get to take advantage of the fact that lots of people are willing to pay because they're really curious, fascinated themselves. Like, why am I sick? What have I got? Totally, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that, um, and it may well be that the solutions just come from that kind of commercial interest because uh, people obviously pay for a lot more for a lot lot less beneficial things. But yeah, so I, th- I think that 
that probably is where it will go. And we, you're already starting to see it during COVID where people are you know, paying just to get home tests and all these kinds of things. So it's been able to percolate. And when it gets to the point where it's cheap enough, it just might become common. The question there is though, like, like you said, that so often though, that information ends up going into a private company's databases. And it's how do you make sure that we share that information, even if people are using different systems, that that information is collected and shared in a way that's useful for all. Yeah, really. I mean, this does to me highlight one advantage of having a nationalized government healthcare system like the NHS, that it's just so much, I mean, I guess they have they have struggles potentially systematizing and uniformizing everything in, internally, but it's a lot easier for them to do that than a country which just has 50 different states running 50 different healthcare systems, which is then like also broken down into all of these, all of these private companies. Certainly. I think it's more than that, right? I think even within the states, each county is its own healthcare system. We're often yeah. doing shared data amongst them. So certainly pandemics make a really strong case for a national healthcare system. Okay, yeah, let's let's push on to talk about mRNA vaccines for just a, just a minute. I guess Andy seemed to think that kind of these diagnostic methods would just be extremely complementary with mRNA vaccine technology because using using I guess so the third stage of the diagnostic is the gene sequencing and then using those sequences you could potentially immediately get the sequence of any new disease maybe even before you know that it's that's the new disease you've got the sequence and then you can start working on an mRNA vaccine candidate the same day potentially just uh, as I understand it I don't know whether I can't remember whether it was Pfizer or Moderna but like one of them basically had a 24-hour turnaround between getting the sequence and having their vaccine candidate I think the one that was actually successful ultimately. Yeah, is there anything important to, to add to that picture? Is that just right? Yeah, so mRNA vaccines are kind of part of a class of things that we call these programmable technologies, programmable countermeasures. And it's again, because when you target the genome sequence of a virus or a microbe, any kind of microbe, it is something that is like an input that is very easy to swap out. And obviously there's certain things you're going to want to know about which part of the virus do you want to target and what exactly do you want to do. And so those vaccines did benefit from the fact that people had been looking at SARS-CoV-2 beforehand, had a sense of what part of the genome was going to stimulate the immune response the best. I think probably even had a few lucky points with the fact that some of the things that they did, they did some optimization that could have had a negative impact, but it, it worked out in this setting. So it's not as easy as that. It's not as easy as any virus immediately you would know, but it, it can be very, very rapid and you are in a position quickly. So I think it just if, it, if the viruses start getting really different and we don't understand as much about them, we just may not know exactly what to target. But I think we will get to the point where it can look like that futuristic thing you're describing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as I was thinking about this last night, writing these questions, it occurred to me that it would be really neat to always have a pre-approved mRNA vaccine trial just ready to go with you know willing patients lined up, just ready for the next time that we identify a new disease. Because then you can get the sequence, not in 24 hours necessarily, but pretty quickly you come up with your vaccine candidate and then hopefully you can manufacture them really quickly and start injections you know, within a week maybe. And I think with SARS-CoV-2, it took them two months from the vaccine candidate to actually starting the trial. So maybe we could save a month, maybe so yeah, something like that by just having the trial and <laughs> having everyone sitting there ready to <laughs> to go. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things, like as much as the specifics of the particular SARS-CoV-2 vaccine was important with what happened here, it was just the trying and testing of mRNA vaccines in general and seeing that there was no negative outcome, at least reported so far, of just using this kind of technology or the liquid nanoparticles that it, they are injected with. None of those were causing serious side effects or you know enough to stop it. So we're already very well positioned in that case where the impacts we'd be looking for is the impact of a particular sequence we might inject, but not necessarily of the technology. So I do think that we're at a place where it could go much, much more quickly. And you're right, so much of like the delays, whenever we 
we often like to show like a Gantt chart of how, how long things we do take. And a lot of the delays are always administrative or bureaucratic or something kind of something that could be shrunk with better processes and better operations management. So having clinical trials ready to go and people poised and ready, I think is, would be yet another thing to shape time. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I know know there's people listening in the UK and US government, so please spread the word about that idea. Let's, let's, let's have the volunteers ready, ready to get on the phone as as soon as we find the the, the next pandemic. All right. Let's push on and talk about some other technologies because we've talked about Three things that I'm particularly psyched about here, but I know there's a lot more going on in your lab and, and of course, in the in the broader biology world. What are some other emerging technologies you know about, which you think could play an important role in pandemic control that it would be useful for the audience to know about? I mean, so I'll just tell you about the ones I'm I'm working on, just because they're front of center. But there's a lot of different technologies. There's there are a number of different kinds of therapies that people are approaching. So when someone gets sick, you can respond to that can be also programmed in that way, and that can be designed to be very uh, two kind of really you know big areas are monoclonal antibodies or just antibodies in general, and and you can have cocktails of those antibodies, but things where essentially you read out what is the host response to a particular virus or particular microbe, and then design antibodies that essentially mimic that. Right. So early on, like basically, all of these things are usually in some fashion were inspired by or identified in nature, but. Basically, in a lot of previous things where people didn't have many ways to respond to infectious disease threats, people would use convalescent plasma. They would just take somebody who got ill from an infection, recovered, and then just use their plasma to then make others get better. And they found that it worked. They found that basically that the blood from somebody who's convalescent, who's recovered from an infection, will carry antibodies, and those antibodies can act in somebody else and stop the infection or buy time for the person to mount their own response. And so that's really cool and powerful. Obviously, it can't really be scaled and there's a lot of ethical issues and lots of ways that that ends up kind of going haywire. But that basically has inspired a whole area of therapeutics that, that is basically saying, okay, can we read that out and can we make synthetic versions of that? And so that was really important during the Ebola outbreak. And there's been more work on that too. Uh, Regeneron, the, what uh, President Trump got, like that technology is based on that, that premise. Okay, so the, the idea there is your adaptive immune system produces these antibodies, but it takes weeks potentially to really scale up and, and produce enough of them. So what if you could just get an injection that had those antibodies or something very similar to the antibodies that you're ultimately going to produce, and then you could get a whole injection of them now, and then those would connect to the, to the virus particles and other pathogens, and then, and then they'll get eaten by the, by the immune system. And of course, so we do have a very expensive and difficult method of getting these, which is to find people who've just recovered from the disease and extract it from their blood. But <laughs> this, it's challenging <laughs> and we're not going to be able to produce enough on, on, on cue. Yeah. And, and you can imagine like lots of ways that that can turn into really dangerous when people are starting to grab people who are yeah. recovered. Yeah. You know, all sorts of messy things. So, so the challenge here is, is the manufacturing, I'm guessing. But are we making progress on figuring out how to just make these in a, in a lab? So this is actually not an area I work, I should say, but this is an area I'm very interested in. But you know, DARPA has a big program that, that is around getting these to be able to be manufactured much more quickly. And you said that a lot of the manufacturing used to be hard and it would be done in these kind of model systems that were cumbersome and so very expensive to manufacture. But I think that's where the investment is about how to try to get it to manufacture and scale. Another example, so one of the ones I do work on is on CRISPR. So CRISPR, we talked about the fact that CRISPR was, you know, was was came from nature as a bacteria's immune system to viruses, and it's designed in nature to detect and destroy viruses. And so whenever you find things in nature, it's, it's good, it's helpful, because you just plot what it's already doing. So it, it is very, they're very good at destroying viruses, but they weren't really designed in nature to do it in mammalian cells, to do it in human cells. 
and uh, and big humans. So there's a lot to take it from here to action, but there's a lot of interest also there. And so my group has done work in that. And, and what you like about these, these are all technologies that are, again, programmable, where you know a sequence and you could immediately within a day plug in the new sequence and knock it down. So we showed in our lab, we studied influenza, VSV, and LCMV, which is another arena virus like Lassa, and showed that in mammalian cells, we could knock down those viruses and decrease infectivity by several hundredfold using these guides. So that's really powerful. We can use them in mammalian cells, but then the next challenge is, okay, how do you get them in the whole organism and get them to where they need to go and what are the off-target effects and all of that. So there's a lot to go from here to there, but that's another really interesting area. That, so that's so one big area. This is basically these areas of different kinds of therapies. And there are also obviously a lot of technologies, vaccine technologies, mRNA is one big thing. You know, another big player in the space were the adenoviruses. They had a little bit more of a complicated spell and there's some issues there with using a DNA virus to make a vaccine. And so we'll see where that goes, but there's a lot of work happening in making these recombinant viral vector vaccines uh, will be another interesting thing to look out for. And then from my own side, I also, it's all a lot of those detection technologies. And so we work very closely with an amazing firm called Fathom Information Design. Ben Fry is the founder of Fathom. He invented processing. Basically, the way I explain Ben is Ben is the person who all of my most genius computational friends say is a genius and who can make computers (laughs) do whatever, but he invented, he basically created the language processing that is used by designers all over the world to make data look like magic and, you know, and do extraordinary things. But we've been partnered with him for a long time, building out these systems for dashboards to quickly, basically every time I show people the dashboards that Ben's made, people are like, oh, that's the future. And I'm like, yeah, that's the future. When people move, like actually Ben's stuff was used in Minority Report and in um, a Hulk like 20 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, when people showed what the future looked like, it was what Ben developed. But <laughs> it's uh, but really beautiful. I mean, you know, those kind of those rapid analytics are going to make a big difference. And so, you know, we've been building these systems that let public health people really track where a case is coming from, where could they be circulating, and then thinking about how to tie that to information that people share about their contacts. We've actually been ourselves building a lot of Bluetooth-type technologies for a long time, but we did. We actually scaled it back because of all of the, you know, when we were doing it, we we're doing it in these small communities with people and sharing. And now in COVID, it was like, you know what, let's make all the contacts manual and have people report them or, or be the ones that the schools are reporting. But that information is fairly powerful and important. So I think those technologies are also going to be really valuable. And if I, if I have a chance to tell you about one thing I, I particularly like, yeah, go if I can tell, tell you about. Um, yeah, so one really fun project that we have been doing alongside all of this is we do a lot of education work. So that's, we're really invested in education and we do a lot of frontline, you know, scientists or genomicists or department of health education, but we also do a lot of kids education. And in 2015, Todd Brown, who's a civics teacher at Sarasota Military Prep Academy, a charter charter school in Sarasota, Florida, reached out to me and asked me to Skype with his students. And then we hit it off. And then he wanted to build a civics curriculum around pandemics for seventh and eighth graders. And Todd's amazing. He's, he's now like a BFF and, you know, we uh, are sort of ride our dies for each other on all sorts of projects. But he, um, <laughs> but he you know, basically through this, brought up this program we now call Operation Outbreak, which is a curriculum in pandemics for people of all ages that ends with a simulation. Or you, you don't even need the curriculum to do the simulation, but, but it's helpful. 
essentially there's a simulation where you simulate an outbreak and then you have to respond to it. And so Todd's students were amazing. Essentially like about 200 students, seventh and eighth graders participating in full PPE, body teams, a media team, the government team, like the whole nine yards. I mean, full realism, really kind of amazing images that you get of them creating a pandemic and responding to it. And what was sort of neat is at the same time that we were helping advising on that, Andreas Kalubri, a postdoc in my lab, was building epidemiological models for outbreaks on college campuses where we were investigating an outbreak of mumps at Harvard and building those Bluetooth technologies to track outbreaks. And through this conversations with Todd, we ended up basically having him build an app that spreads a virtual virus via Bluetooth. And so you could mimic a full outbreak event. And so that was like the missing piece of the realism for our outbreak, which is how do you spread this virus? But basically it's on the kids' phones and there's all these emojis where you're sick and you're vomiting and, you know, all sorts of things are happening and, you know, and you can unlock diagnostics and see whether or not you have the thing and you can use vaccines. So we could almost like mimic every part of the outbreak and mitigation strategies. We also even had beacons where you had like a beacon where it was like a dirty sink that was emitting uh, virus. And so really like, it's pretty awesome. We you know, really got to the point where we had a full-fledged outbreak and we even created an economic model so that the kids couldn't just hide. They had to like come out and get stuff. And so there's you know, all sorts of like those pieces we put together and we've been rolling that out. And Ben uh, and the Fathom team have developed this dashboard where again, it looks like the future. Students can see what happened in their simulation and they can look at the data and they can understand all of the different pieces and investigate it. So I think that's another thing that we're really excited about is at the very least, like we should have involved people more in the COVID response as opposed to being like the government's got this wait for us. I think it would have built more trust if they had more of a skin in the game and, and agency. But also, even if they didn't, why didn't we at least use this as an opportunity to teach them about genomics and public health and epidemiology and what r not is? I mean, there's so much math and science that we could have taught them and, and got them to be more participants in contact tracing in a positive way and the psychology of it and all of that. So I think one of the things we're, we're now working with the Department of Education in Louisiana, and they are going to be doing a curriculum for all 11th and 12th graders that's, that is voluntary, but it's an elective curriculum they can do that'll be available to all 11th and 12th graders that will basically be you know, use our operations, our outbreak science textbook that we've developed. And then the students will get to participate in these simulations. So we're pretty excited about it. And we're excited about you're taking this at least as a moment to empower the next generation of scientists. But we also think that, you know, love to come down to DC and run it at Congress and run it. If people need to understand what does it look like? What is, what do we say are not what's going on? Like all of those things. And there's nothing that can beat that experiential learning, ideally not in a life or death situation, but in a game, you can actually see all these things. So that's another piece that we've been really like invested in and excited about. Yeah, I wonder whether you, people might be interested in kind of playing this as a game, as an app on their phone to see to themselves whether what they're doing is safe enough that they wouldn't get, they wouldn't catch the virus. Like you could imagine lots of people in London where I, where I live playing this and then you got to like try to avoid catching, catching the virus on the tube and things like that. And you get some indication of how much risk have you actually been exposing yourself to, which is so hard to judge. Well, totally, right? Because most of the time, like you play these things and you're giving the data to somebody, but then mm. you're not getting it back. And this yeah. is, we actually, we, there was a world where we thought, you know what, the the game is the way we actually solve it. People just want to play a game. Um, and like, meanwhile, a real virus like happens, you just turn it from yeah, fake virus right. to the real virus, right? <laughs> I mean, so yeah, no, we definitely, if there's any gamers out there, like we, we, we've been in touch with like some different groups, but trying to sort of say, how do we actually turn this into, you know, a collective collaborative game? 
But yeah, no, I, I do think that that's, that's right. And the neat thing is in, in this case, they get to see all of that. So you get back on your phone, how many contacts you have each day, how many, and here's the thing, because most people know how many contacts they have every day, right? But they don't know how many contacts their contacts have. Like, what is your true exposure? Like, what is like, you know, buddy down the hall, who else has he been with? And <laughs> it's remarkable. I, I would love to get to show you the visual. Yeah. Um, if you go to operationoutbreak.org, if you go there, you'll, you can see a visualization of one of our cases, but you see most people social distancing most of the time. And then there's a few people that have like 70 contacts. And then every person who's in contact with one of those people essentially has Toast. 70 contacts, right? <laughs> and yeah. And so it is pretty neat to get a real sense of like, what is my actual exposure? And th- there's a funny meme where it's like what you think your bubble is and what your bubble really is. <laughs> um, and this really shows you that. So yeah, I would have been really fascinated to see that during during this pandemic. Have a, have a good sense. It's like, yeah, when you decide whether to meet up with people, you're going to ask them, you know, what have you been up to this week? You're always kind of wondering, you know, are they telling you everything? Are they remembering yeah, right. everything that they've been doing? There's definitely a temptation to to not mention that thing that you did eight days ago that might have been a little bit dangerous. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, and I, I think that well, that, and that is the challenge, right? That's also the challenge of because I, you know, I, every I have a a bit of a like um. My dad was the director of intelligence of the Savak. So I think I brought, and I spent a lot of my childhood in hiding. So I think I have this like risk. Everything I think of is a nice idea. I think like, who's going to co-op this in which way and how's this going to go, right? Because then you're like, you're trying to figure out when, where somebody you like, you know, your, your ex-girlfriend, right. like where they are. Like there's all sorts <laughs> of things that somebody's going to try to use this in a really bad way. And so how do you, yeah, how do you figure out how to get people the information they need and nothing else, right? And that's the, that's the trick with all of this. But in the game setting, particularly when they can turn it on for a little period of time, that's a nice setting in which you can try this and understand it. That, and that's what we like. We, we let, we were working in a college in Colorado and we let them do it for one week. And so that for that one week, they could know, hey, they're being tracked for that one week. They'll get a sense of what's going on. And they, it's pretty remarkable. That's, that's where they found they had some people have 70 contacts. And so you can find that information and you can do it anonymously and you can get them that kind of insight without without too much exposure. So that's that's the kind of tiptoe into it and figure out where are all the ways it could get misused bit by bit without kind of rolling it out and then finding out like all the ways it can be co-opted. Yeah. Yeah, the, the website is uh, operationoutbreak.org uh, and we'll stick up a link uh, okay. to that okay. as well as everything else that you mentioned in the in the show. Yeah, just skipping back to the biotechnologies you were talking about, I guess the important thing to note and the reason that you wanted to mention those things probably and why they're so cool is that they're all platforms that can be applied to tons of different pathogens. And it's just so much more useful to develop a platform a diagnostic platform or a vaccine platform or a treatment platform that can apply potentially to a large fraction of all pathogens than it is to develop one that's boutique and specific to just one. <laughs> and that's, yeah, it, it seems like that's that's a big area where humanity could invest more is seeing the bigger picture and realizing we don't just need to fight this pandemic. We need to fund the technologies that will eliminate disease in general or contagious diseases in general. Let's push on and yeah, very briefly talk about covid are there any things that you'd like to see the U.S. or U.K. governments do about COVID specifically that they're not already doing? Well, the U.S. is in a very interesting place. When you go outside, people are kind of starting to act like this is behind us. And, and it's really, it is powerful. Vaccines do work and cases are you know, plummeting across the country. And so that's all really great. The thing is, in the many fears I've had, like since the beginning of this outbreak, the fear I've always had is this kind of complacency with this idea of, oh, it only affects like older and infirm. And of course, that's not that's not great. We don't want those people to be at risk either, but, but it's also complacent that it couldn't affect younger people. And so right now, still, you know, individuals who are younger than 12 can't get a vaccine and the, and the virus, viruses change. And at any point it could start affecting children. And so 
we really do need to actually like keep up the work to try to root this out to get basically the only way that you'll know that a virus isn't going to change in an unanticipated way is to get it to zero. And so that's what we should not feel, you know, comfortable until it's at zero and not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world. And so I think that there is more and more of a push of supporting other countries, but there is no, you know, viruses do not respect boundaries. And no matter what kind of isolationist tendencies you have, it's never been effective in stopping outbreaks from happening. And usually, in fact, makes it worse because there isn't more communication across countries. And so I would say where uh, countries that have it under control should focus is getting their own cases down to zero and helping other countries do so as well. And so wherever we can help, it's really terrifying to see what's happening in places like India right now. And, and you know, both for those individuals there and what the harbinger of what that can mean for us. Ultimately, like, you know, we, we sat complacently, you know, in the United States back in February in 2020, but like hearing these sort of transcripts from, from places like Italy of what they were experiencing. And it was only going to be what was going to come to us later. And so we are seeing in a lot of different places, more and more evidence of illness in children. And so we should know that that is likely going to come to us if we're not careful. And I think about that in particular, I think kids gave up so much of their lives last year to protect the older generation. And we honestly should, should do the same for them. Right. And that if, if they can't be vaccinated, I, that that's the kind of thing for me, even I, I didn't get, I, I have gotten a vaccine, but when I thought about getting one, it wasn't, I want to protect myself. It was, I is my responsibility to do for other people who can't get vaccinated for varying reasons. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that this research that you did where you were looking at, if, you know, if you're a group, like I guess a university or a sports league, and you want to make sure that a pandemic doesn't, doesn't get in to your, to, your, to your group so that you can continue operating normally. At some point, once you have enough tests, then it's actually much more efficient to give them to your neighbors or the people that you're, you're living with or the people who are like, you're potentially socially going to be exposed to than to just test your own people even more. And that kind of makes some intuitive sense because of course, the only way that you're going to be penetrated with the pathogen is exposure to someone who's like on the surface of this who's on the boundary of this group and after a while you just hit really diminishing returns testing your own people even even more often but yeah in the, in, the, in the paper you mentioned it's kind of it's, it's interesting psychologically that most groups haven't been interested in doing this and i guess most countries also haven't been that keen on on, on sharing their tests and it seems like we see something potentially similar maybe it's too soon to say but it does seem like countries are not that excited to spend money buying vaccines for other countries or or share them with countries that might might struggle to afford them even though I saw this paper from the IMF last week where they were saying it is actually like profitable, outright profitable. It requires like no altruism to justify the US buying vaccines for really poor countries because the US profits in, in a bunch of different ways. They don't import the virus back if it's not in, over, in, in other countries. You avoid new strains appearing that then might be immune to the vaccines that we've got and just like recreate the problem all again or might be more virulent or affect children, as you're saying. And also, of course, if other countries are doing well economically, then they're buying and trading with the United States. And so you make you make money that way. And just like the return on vaccines in general is so great that even if you're a different country, you benefit from another country getting them. But despite this logic, it's so far been a little bit hard to raise money internationally to, to get the world's poorest countries vaccinated. I think and hope that this may change as vaccines become more abundant and countries are thinking less about how to vaccinate their own populations and then can think more about how to vaccinate the world. But it does seem like we have this kind of inward focused view. Well, totally. You know, you know, it's funny because like, you know how there's always that debate are humans like inherently selfish or selfless? Yeah. Like what, what are they inherently? But you often see kids and like they can be pretty selfish. They're like my toy, my thing. And I do feel like there's all these things that make people regress. And I feel like outbreaks are something that make people regress. I, I think that, 
you know, it, it, people always have this feeling that you're going to like in an outbreak, everyone's going to appeal to their, the higher angels of their nature and become better humans. And it's like, no, they're punching each other in grocery stores and they're like fighting over toilet paper. And, and why would you expect something more than that? It, particularly because you're, you're saying it's, there's an insidious deadly threat that's weaponizing your neighbor against you, like turning them essentially into like a kind of zombie look, you know, it's like somebody that can affect them. And so there's a natural tendency to become very selfish. And it's, it's really interesting to watch just how extreme it is. I've been, I'm not going to say specifically what places, but I was in a lot of conversations where I was begging people to consider testing outside of their own institutions, saying to them, like, it looks really bad. I mean, just as a starting point, it looks terrible that you're investing this much money and, you know, and you're bringing people back, like particularly in college campuses. It's like, oh, you're bringing people back in the middle of a pandemic that's going to inflame your local community, but even more so where it's like you're taking all these resources. And so finally, actually, when we, when we did this paper, this one called the case for altruism in, in diagnostic testing, it was, it was literally to answer that question. Like I kept saying kind of intuitively, it makes sense that the more you test other people, the better off you will and the more insight you have about what's going on. But what exactly are the actual economics? What are the, what are the, what are the numbers there? And it was just a model uh, just to get started, but it was pretty obvious. Like every single version of this that we ran, people did better by testing outside. And, and usually by do, using them, not just testing a little bit outside, using the majority of your tests outside, it's essentially you're creating a barrier, right? You're, you're seeing multiple layers out. And like you said, that of people that are gonna cross over and penetrate that barrier. And particularly the way we're using the test, People talk about this idea where there, there's all these people like, like I'm a, I'm a math person. So I always really am watching how people use data and use it in ways that just don't make sense. Like people are always touting their positivity rate and saying like, oh, this is so great. Our positivity rate is so low. But I'm like, cause you're testing healthy people. It means you're testing badly. Like the actual true positivity rate is much higher. That means you have terrible aim. And so it's a very interesting phenomenon where people are so proud to say that positivity is low, but I'm like, it means you're testing poorly. Like unless, unless that, that's an indicator of the truth. But like, in fact, you're always better off if you are, your, your testing positivity For rate is better. For any level, better. you want the positivity rate to be high. If, you're, if your testing positivity rate is not as good as chance, then you really have a problem, right? And that's essentially what we were tolerating. <laughs> we were tolerating a testing positivity rate that was lower than chance. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I think that that's like essentially, you know, that's just an example in the diagnostic space of just how badly people had it, but just also how self-focused people become during a pandemic. But like you said, what is true is altruism is actually a better model in infectious disease. It just, it just is. Like helping your neighbor when they have something like cancer is what you should do as, as a good person, but it doesn't actually impact you. Helping your neighbor when it's something communicable impacts you. And we have to get people to understand that. Sadly, I would like people to just do it because it's the right thing to do, but yeah. I'm okay with getting like them to do it. Self-interest is also Yeah, fine. you know, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it yeah, for yeah. now. Yeah, uh, Kieran just pointed out to me that the Biden administration yesterday said they're going to buy 500 million Pfizer coronavirus vaccine doses for the rest of the world, which I guess is about 4% of the total amount that I think is, is necessary to, to finish the job. So yeah, ho- hopefully that's, uh, that's, that's really good news. Maybe a sign that now that there's more to go around in, in the US, well, we're, going to, we're going to see more programs to vaccinate everyone and get COVID as close to eliminated as, 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 as possible. Do you have any kind of overall view on whether gain-of-function research is useful as a part of reducing the risk from contagious diseases in general? Like, does the does the benefit outweigh the outweigh the risk? I am. I think, and I said before about you know all of the kind of this this area. I'm I'm very much like I'm the kind of person that's very. I see both sides, and so it's hard for me. Like I I truly see both sides, and I see a value in why we should do gain-of-function, and I can see the major risks. 
And I think that's the kind of thing I've always myself worked in spaces that are very, very risky, but if you do it, you have to be, you have to always be thinking four steps ahead of what could happen, what could go wrong. And so I think it's something that is, there's a lot of value to do, but I do think that there are real risks and we have to put measures in place to make sure that we mitigate all of those risks at every point. And so there are places like, you know, understanding exactly where a virus can go, whether or not there's a possibility it could go airborne, whether or not it's a possibility that it could bind to another receptors and, and kind of do more harm, I think is valuable. And it allows us to be a couple steps ahead of the virus and where it can go. But there's both the accidental possibilities, right? The possibility of an accidental release or something like that, that can't be ruled out like it's possible. And I think that's where really the, the kind of safety programs really are important and making sure that there's a kind of collective universal biosafety commission that makes sure that anybody working on it is doing it safely. And then there's also obviously the, the misuse. I actually, you know, it's like in all the things that I, I pulled out every once in a while, I sent it to one of my friends, like, you know, uh, as a medical student, I sent an op-ed just to like, you know, op-ed at newyorktimes.org, but it was, it was February, 2001. And it was when the Human Genome Project was published. And at that point, the same month that that was published, there was an article, I think it was the Journal of Virology, but it was basically an article by Jackson. Basically, it was the Australian Pest Control kind of research center where they were, you know, Australia has a lot of pests. And essentially what they have is an institute that tries to figure out how to get rid of those. Right? Them, and, yeah. yeah and, and so like they're, they're doing a serious gain of function research. They're trying to figure out how to, and, and, and basically they published this paper where they show that IL-4 is an important component of like your immune system that regulates your immune response. And uh, if you actually kind of um, armed the mousepox virus, forgive me if I've forgotten it, it was 20 years ago, but it was essentially that they armed the mousepox virus with the IL-4 from the mouse, from the rodent itself, essentially giving, giving the, the virus this piece of armor from the host immune system that allowed it to kind of knock it down and tell it to like, go quiet. And it was... It was so incredibly effective that it, I think, override even vaccines and, and just decimated this population. And it was remarkable. And they just decided to publish it to just like put it out there that this is possible. And there were other papers like that that have come out, you know, at varying times where there was like, I think, some cat virus also that somebody showed some incredible effects about. And I, I remembered like basically the op-ed I wrote talked about the fact that just as we are publishing the entire like book of life that is the human code, We've published a paper that shows how you could co-opt that and use it, it. or yeah. weaponize it. And so it, coming back to that point that I made about the kind of like, how do we survive our technical adolescence is, you know, forget the kind of just innate risks of doing this kind of research. You know, you, you like figuring out what a gain of function is, is just giving somebody else information about what recipe they want to use in making a virus. And so the problem is that they might be doing that whether we do it or not. And so it's the kind of question of how do we, like, do we just go blind to it and don't do it and just hope somebody else doesn't do it? Or do we do it and do we do it thoughtfully? So I think those are all the really hard questions that need to be asked. And I've thought about them in varying ways, but I don't want to like, I'm not going to say them here as if they're fact. It's, I haven't thought about it deeply enough, or, but, but in essence, those are the risks that, that we, I think it's important for us to do this kind of research to some degree because we need to be a few steps ahead. But with every step we take, there's the, the risk of accidental risks or misuse that could be even more damaging. Let's move on and talk a bit about advice for people in the audience who might want to have a career a little bit like yours or, or just help with the broader project that we've been talking about. I guess, yeah, your lab has been really thriving and a lot of great people have been coming through it and out of it. 
I guess among people in the next generation of your field who've flourished, yeah, what are kind of archetypal good decisions that they've made or practices that they that they've followed? I mean, I think for in science, a career in science, so much of your success is built on the success of the community you work with. And we talk about the lone genius kind of idea, but that's just never the case. There, there's so many people who are excellent and outstanding whose careers were stalled because of choices that they've made. And so there's so much serendipity and there's so much, yeah, luck that goes into these things, but you can build the luck that you have by making really good choices as to where you work and who you work for and with. And I think really finding that right community that that both um, the person and the people that you work with and for have integrity and are will look out for you. And it can be a treacherous business, but it, but there are good people out there. And so finding them and then finding that right place where it's like, yeah, the, this is the kind of project that I wake up in the morning and think about. And these are the people I want to think about it with. I think my success has been in finding those people, you know, and then having the support to, to do kind of my best work. Mm. Yeah, well, what's one of the most kind of instructive mistakes you've made? And I guess, yeah, what, what can what can listeners learn from it? So when you work in infectious disease and you work on biosafety level four viruses in remote settings, like there's just a million things that are mis- you know, mistakes that can be made and things that can go wrong. And it is it is about like just constantly um, reacting to it and learning from it and, and digging deep. So there's an adage I really, really like. It's from the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins which I, I, I recommend to anybody who's trying to, to do something great when maybe if they had to be honest with themselves, they're good and not great. And how do you kind of get yourself and lift yourself to, from good to great? And it, the book is based on a lot of really great research, but, but it has some really good anecdotes that help make the point. And so one of my favorite anecdotes, if you know it, is it's the Admiral Stockdale paradox. But in essence, basically the author, Jim Collins, is uh, with... Admiral Jim Stockdale, who is a war veteran, a decorated war, war veteran who spent many years in Hanoi Hilton. So, you know, Vietnam's first prison camp and persevered and, and is credited for helping others persevere. And he said, you know, how did you do it? How did you survive Hanoi Hilton? You know, and Jim Stockdale said, I never lost, you know, faith in the enduring fact that I would prevail. I always believed that in the end I would prevail. And then Jim Collins asked him, okay, well, who didn't, who died in there? Who didn't make it? And he said, the optimists, to which, you know, Jim Collins was like, sounded like you're an optimist. And he said, oh, no, no, no. The optimist said, we'll be out by Thanksgiving. No, we'll be out by Christmas. No, we'll be out by Easter. No, we'll be out by summer. And they died of a broken heart. And so the Stockdale principle is never, you know, confuse your faith that in the end you will prevail with the ability to face the most devastating facts of your current existence. And so actually, like the way we do our work, I am constantly being like, I believe in what we're doing. I believe in the outcomes. I believe in what we're doing it. But right now, like our sample set is bananas. I, we might have some safety issues. Like every day you have to dig in and be like, we're not being effective. This document is garbage. The safety risks are high. Like if you're going to try to work in this kind of space, you need to constantly be going under the hood and being really honest with what's working and not working. And so actually it took me a second, but when I think about it, I'm like, no, every day is a mistake that we're learning from almost. And some glorious examples is that we went on a trip to Nigeria at one point and we were trying to move a set of samples out to be able to ship them back safely to the, to the States. And basically we had PPE on and all of that, but when it released from liquid nitrogen, one of the tubes popped and, and released gas. And of course, then we like check, we look and, and that sample was really hot. I was there with two members of my team and we had to... Um, basically shut down. We, so we, we had a thing, the risk was low. It was actually a pretty low risk of anything going on. And we even called the CDC and all sorts of partners and they said, it's okay. But I remember thinking, 
they're like, oh, it's fine, you know, but obviously don't get sick while you're there. Cause if you do, you now have an exposure risk. You're going to have to be flown back on a, on a jet plane. And that, all of that was like, oh, wait a second. You know, I actually don't think we have Lhasa, but what's the probability we're not going to get sick at some point here and somebody's not going to eat some bad food or something. And I was like, I can't take the, so basically in that instance, we shut the whole thing down. And I was like, we got 24 hours to get home and nobody eat anything until we get there. Like, you know, everybody's eating the home bars. And so, and, and I basically like, I, I, I get a little crazy. Like I, I, I certainly everyone was like, you don't need to do this at zero risk, but I made us all go into 21 days of quarantine. When we got home, I shuttled everybody into new apartments. Like I brought, I, you know, I had food going to them. I got MGH and the CDC. I got all these people on board. And it was one of those things where I was like, you know what? That was a mistake and we need to think about it. And that needs to never happen again. And we're going to do a deep dive and understand like where that happened. And it was funny because when Ebola came around, MGH was always saying like, thank goodness we had that simulation with you. And we essentially did. We simulated what it was like to spend, you know, have to like run the possibility of an infection. And it really positioned us very, very well during Ebola to deal with the fact that people were taking real risks of a real outbreak that was spreading. So that was like an example. Like basically I'd say my answer to that question is like every mistake is an instructive mistake if you use it the right way. And, and really I, I was like lean into the mistakes as much as possible and almost to an annoying fault, turn them into an exercise we're all going to learn from. But when you're working with deadly viruses, that's not a bad way to be. Yeah, I think part of the reason why it's really useful to have this slightly indefatigable optimism that eventually things will work out is just that when we look out into the external world and look at other people's projects, they look like really clean and like they went to plan and like like things are working smoothly and uh, they didn't they didn't cost too much. But then the typical thing when you're in the thick of a project that's especially doing something new is that it takes much longer than it seems like it should and it costs more and like everything is a mess and stuff's not working and the results aren't as clean or convincing as you as you hoped they would be. Uh, and it's just like that, that difference between like the internal view and then the external PR facing view gives us a very false impression of what life should be like. <laughs> and so you have to kind of have this kind of optimism to, to overcome the, the fact that everything seems harder than it should be. Well, but it's, you know, the thing is, I mean, and that's the other thing I say, like when I give advice to people, I'm like, find people you can laugh with. I mean, the fact of the matter is that I, I remember it was actually, so I'll say it was Sherman Tabrizi and Matt Strumlaw, two of my favorite people in the whole world. And, and we were, I just remember... There was something else that happened like on that trip, like right before we left, we broke the centrifuge we'd brought out to place there. And I just remember we're like in some airport, it might've been like Amsterdam, like halfway through the trip. And it's like very quiet. It's like one of those things where the whole airport was, it was like a, we were on a long escalator, you know, and what could have been like a scene from heaven. And we're, <laughs> we're sitting there with all of our stuff, like coming back from this trip, like 24 hours on ground. And, and like we exposed ourselves and broke the centrifuge we you know, brought to like place there. And I remember just Matt, like, kind of looking at Sherman and I, and he's like, did we tell the lab we broke the centrifuge? And the, I just couldn't stop laughing. It was just, I was like, and I remember, and I just started laughing. And Matt was like, if we were there, you know, any longer, we would have burned that place to the ground. And it was just like, it was, uh, anyway, it was, it was amazing. And I, I think that ultimately, like, there, there's a part of it where, like, all of it could be a sitcom as well. And you have to be with people that you can laugh through it and you can talk through it. Like, you can be proud of, the fact of the matter is like Sherman and Matt are two of the smartest people on the planet. And, and, and I was the one that actually, I, you know, I, I'll say that whole situation was my mistake. Like I made mistakes that led us into the position and there was no risks in the end, but it was like the fact that we even had that kind of a situation we were in was my error and they are brilliant and they're amazing. But like the fact that we can laugh that he could just say that of like, we would have burned the place to the ground. <laughs> I, I mean, that's how you get through it. And you have to be, to be successful you have to be very open about those mistakes because I think where things get a little dicey is where people get this place where they have to have a show 
of perfection, right? That's actually when danger, and they show that, like, that's like study after study, right? In where an airplane's crash, it's when people are afraid to tell the pilot, hey, like, doesn't look like we're in the right place. Like, the way you stave off those things happening is having a comfort level and a humor and a, like, to say when, what things are wrong. And I, I think it gets very, very dangerous when, when we lose humanity and we lose our humor. Yeah, yeah. On this topic of overcoming big challenges in life and in your career, you, you suffered this really horrific car accident in 2015, which almost killed you and took days of surgery and, and I guess years of physical therapy to recover from. And I guess you never, it's, it's the kind of thing you never fully recover from. Because most people suffer some kind of horrible setback in their life or career at some point, which takes them out of work for months or maybe years, whether it's physical illness, mental illness, bereavement, you know, an, an important project falling apart and breaking their heart. And those tragedies can be, can be really hard to, to bounce back from. Did you kind of learn anything about how to recover from physical illnesses and kind of personal tragedy from that accident and, and like find a way to get back on your feet? Yeah. So, yeah. So just to kind of set the stage, it was actually July, 2015, just as things are starting to calm down a little bit, you know, after Ebola. And I was at a conference of all places and, uh, and basically I was in an, in an accident where I was catapulted onto boulders, shattered my pelvis and both my knees required, I think what was, you know, it was a week of surgeries, like three or four, I, I don't know why suddenly I'm like three or four surgeries, but all day, four, I think four all day surgeries, uh, about 30 hours of surgery. Um, and I now have six plates and 30 giant rods that stitched together my pelvis and my knees. So it's a lot, it's a lot. It was definitely a lot. And it was sort of, in, you know, and it, and definitely knocked me into the present, into literally the room I was in and nothing else, and was uh, basically hospital bound, dead down for four months. And yeah, it's still, it's a daily recovery process. Um, it's a lifetime recovery process. And I think the things that I learned about from that was that, you know, we kind of, in the world today, we, we often, everything seems to be in the mind, you know, every, every, everything is in like what's happening here. And ultimately our mind does not work if our body doesn't work. It just doesn't like that. So, so the thing is, we cannot forget our bodies at all times. It's it is the engine that that runs everything else. And so, it, it forced me to take a moment and say, I need to make this body work. And I and I had to for somebody who like never even takes a day off without doing some work. I like to kind of not be able. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do anything but that. So I, I just turned all my attention to making my physical therapy, becoming a scientist of injury and trying to figure out how to make my body work. And I, and since then, like I, I dedicate a lot of my, every day I have to dedicate time to working my body and working all of these, you know, scar tissue and bones that are with me as best as I can. And so I, I think that ultimately it's probably the, the thing that I like learned the most about it is just that if my body is not well, then, then I can't do my best work. And that ultimately uh, you have to support yourself in everything you do. And so I, I think that also when I run my lab, it's in that same way. I'm, I'm constantly trying to, I, I know I, I run the team. There's, so there's no way we, we, we run hard. It's not that we don't run hard. And it's not that, I mean, I, you know, I, I pulled more all-nighters than I like want to admit this year, but I still like always try to kind of hold the fort and say like, but I have to, I have to take care of me. And so it's just really important. And also knowing also that I think the other thing is also like how much you can do with exercise and and, and paying attention to it, right? That the fact of the matter is like most of these things can be solved. Like while I love Western medicine, we are way too reliant on it and complicit on it. And I think some of the best support I've gotten is from outside modalities that are really remarkable. And I don't think we use it enough of using kind of other ways of, of improving our health and our well-being. And I, I, for example, never used any 
other than obviously during the surgeries and a few weeks after, I stopped using pain medication, even though that sounds crazy, but I found massage did what you needed to do. Massage is amazing. It's underutilized. And, uh, and then after massage, a stretching modality that I use called resistance stretching, those things were really amazing and are outside of what we kind of call medicine, but I think was far more potent and powerful. And I, I think that, that there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it makes complete sense that it's very hard for the brain to work really well if the rest of the body that it's attached to isn't being kept in, kept in, <laughs> in, in, in good shape. I guess, I, I, yeah, I feel like most of my friends, I, I think, take that view and think that it's, it's like good holistically to, to exercise and to stay in shape and take care of your, your physical health. Have you found that people, people don't think that? I, you know, like obviously that, that's been a turn that's kind of more important, but no, I mean, I think that, I think people do in it conceptually, but mm. do they really do that? And, and particularly, particularly, like I would say for me, I haven't gone to medical school. Medical school is designed to make you anxious, depressed and unhealthy. And I always find that really remarkable that like, basically we would never go to a barber with bad hair or a facialist with bad skin, but our doctors often have such poor health. And so I think, for example... Like it's pretty remarkable how little personal health is valued in the medical training and profession. And so that, that's for me an example. Like of, I, mean, I do think that um, there's a lot of industries in which personal health is not valued. And I think, you know, it's, and sad to me that I think, you know, the, the medical profession has some of the highest rates of suicide and depression of any. And those are the people that are the keepers of our health. So that, that's a real issue for me. It kind of speaks to like, what is the integrity of the process you're doing? But it's not their fault. Like, having gone to medical school, you're just beaten into that, you know, where it's all about all-nighters and all of that. So I, I, I do think that while conceptually, yes, people get like that that matters, I think in practice, no, too often not. not. And I didn't. I, I didn't. I, I, was, I was running myself into the ground. Yeah, I mean, the stories I've heard about kind of just the indignity and the cruelty that people go through during medical training is I've, I found kind of mind boggling. And I mean, obviously, it's terrible for them. And it's, it's very dangerous for patients as well, because it means that people can't do proper work because they're just they're being run into the ground. <laughs> it's like you don't want your surgeon to be run into the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to keep love to keep talking about this. But unfortunately, we've, we've, we've come up on time. And I know you've got a really important grant proposal to, to, to work on. So uh, I'll, I'll let you go. I guess just just one final question is, when prepping, I heard that you got most of your lab to come stay at your parents' house during during the Ebola pandemic so that you could all work together and try to get more done. How did that pan out, like having being in such close contact constantly with, with your colleagues? Maybe it's slightly in tension with what we were just saying about the importance of work-life balance. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I appreciate you did your research. You went to like deep dives. It was, uh, the, I think the story I've told about that was that I ha- it wasn't like we, we all were all working during Ebola um, at my parents' house. It was, it was that right before Ebola hit, we happened to have been doing a lab retreat where I decided to kind of do it. It was sort of at and around my parents' house. It was like a kind of, I, I say it was a Coachella vibe that was teetering on a fire festival vibe <laughs> where people were intense and stuff like that, um, kind of out and about. Um, we just decided to just do, do the retreat a little bit differently. But we had these like very fun activities where we did canoeing and we did sort of like team building stuff, but we did a lot of these like ropes coursey kind of team building exercises. And it, it happened to have, we were actually on our way down to the trip when the Ebola outbreak was declared in Guinea and two members of my team had to reschedule and not go on the retreat to go and set up diagnostics in Sierra Leone. And the rest of us went down to this trip 
but it was still in Guinea. It wasn't anywhere where we were. And we just, you know, we finished the trip and a couple of members, Christian Anderson and Stephen Geyer went off and, and set up the diagnostics in Sierra Leone. And so, and then we had that and we came back and we were refreshed and we were bonded and we were working together. And then essentially a couple of months later, the outbreak was escalating a couple of months later, it came to Sierra Leone and we had to respond in a really big way. And essentially what happened when it came to, to that is that the Ministry of Health asked us to sequence the samples and find out what was in it and, and, and sequence a whole set of samples and, and figure out what was happening. So we had to immediately ship the samples back to the U.S., sequence them, put them on. And we had sequenced Ebola before, but never really from clinical samples like this. And so we tried out essentially four different technologies to sequence these samples. And what we did is we like paired off in teams and each team took one of the technologies and, and tried them. And we had to coordinate and we had to have these like regular touch point meetings. And it was very, very like very complex, very time sensitive and just required a lot of coordination. And I remember thinking, goodness, like that retreat was really helpful for this because there was all, all of those activities are, you know, you're trying to get across a log and it's all about like just trusting the people you're working with and, and communicating with them really effectively and so it was just one of those really terrific things that, yeah, it was the serendipity that we just kind of came back and were really high on each other and on working together. And so it was remarkable to see how well we coordinated, how well we tried all the different technologies. When one of them worked, everybody jumped over to that one and everything just, just flew. We were in a flow state. And so it was more, it was more about that. It wasn't like, um, it was more just about the fact that those kinds of building those relationships are so important and they're, they're not, it's not frivolous. It's actually, it's core to success. Is, is, is building those partnerships and communication and, and trust with your colleagues. So um, I think that was the story. This has been a, an, an incredible pleasure. I hope that in a couple of years' time, many more people have heard of all these technologies and they've, and they've really, really changed the game and people appreciate what they're, what they're capable of. And maybe I'll even be able to get one of these things at, at my doctor's office in a couple of years' time. Or in your home, yeah. My guest today has been Pati Savetti. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Parties. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. If you want to work on turning Partis' vision into a reality, head over to 80,000hours.org advising and learn more about our career advising service to see if it might be able to help you out. Uh, it's obviously free of charge and our advisors might be able to point you in the right direction or connect you with people you'd benefit from speaking with. I also just want to apologize that we haven't yet nailed the audio quality uh, on all of these interviews. Uh, we really want to get it right and have been experimenting uh, with new setups, but it is surprisingly hard uh, to make sure that everything goes right when you're recording remotely. Kieran and I are going to keep working on it, though, uh, and hopefully find a reliable solution sooner rather than later. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. And as always, we've got a quality transcript and lots of links to learn more in the blog post associated with this episode, both organized by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.